Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here, once again, with Adam Chemalewski to kick off 2020's spooky season. Uh, Chema, you could make the argument spooky season started sometime in January of this year, and we've all been living in a horror movie. Um, but uh, but for real, we are we are kicking off spooky season, our yearly um, our yearly trip into horror movies um, and horror pop culture in general. Uh, something that we always love doing around here. Um, so Chema and I are getting to it right now as we have pa- we are deep into fall and October is right around the corner. Chema, are you excited? Oh, dude, believe me, I am excited as one could possibly be for a fall in the pandemic. And I got to tell you one thing with all the cancellations and stuff that we kind of talked about. Um, one I left out, which is probably the most important one, is that Halloween out here in L.A. in West Hollywood is like the shit. Okay, it's like OU, but like not house parties, just mostly bars right. and stuff like that. A big, massive gathering of all the fucking Halloweens in the world. It fell on a Saturday during the pandemic. And that had been the one time that (laughs) Jess and I guaranteed could have gone to it all day, dressed up in costume, walked around and everything. And they they do it on Halloween every single year. So like my my first year out here, it was on a Thursday. And like I wasn't about to do that on a Thursday. So like a fucking Saturday Halloween that we have to toss away because of the coronavirus. Saturday Halloween. And you and I both know because of that, that it's going to be like a nice like 60 degrees. Mm-hmm. Low humidity, perfectly yep. no rain, clear clear day out, like everywhere. Like somehow the United States is going to be completely immune to weather um, on yep. on October thirty first. I mean, even though even though most things around me are open, like a lot of places voluntarily are not doing Halloween type stuff. Um, right. You know, certain bars and places that would have had them would have had Halloween parties and stuff. Otherwise, are not doing them. And I know, like my parents aren't. They're like, no, no one's coming to trick or treat with us. Like, you know what I mean? They're not, they're not going to open their doors for anyone to come. So exactly this whole, this whole like Halloween season just totally fucking ruined. And you and I both know know it's going to be a perfect day that Saturday. Yep. You bet. You guys in Ohio, you are going to have sunshine. It's going to be beautiful. It'll be like the winter time of 2015 where like on Christmas day, all of a sudden it was the most beautiful day of the year. Mm -hmm. That is what's going to happen. And it's just you're it's going to be like a kid looking out at the window at like kids playing in the street that he can't join to a certain degree where yeah. we're all the kid on the inside and like fun and enjoyment in our regular lives are all the kids playing outside in the street ignoring us that's what's going to happen exactly exactly so instead of instead of uh instead of getting your kicks uh you know on your typical halloween uh your typical spooky season stuff how about you listen to our grouping of podcast here because we are changing up how we are doing our spooky season just a little bit this year. We're obviously going to be covering horror movies, but instead of kind of branching out into different into different uh, types of horror movies and different horror movies individually, we are dedicating this entire month to uh, one of the living horror masters of Hollywood, John Carpenter. This whole month is John Carpenter centric. Um, and this episode, this first episode that we're kicking off the month with is going to be like a deep dive into John Carpenter, his whole filmography, the man himself. And, and we're going to get into a lot of stuff. Um, we're going to do a lot of stuff with John Carpenter and then we're going to break out into, as we, as we move along in spooky season, we're going to break out into some of his individual films. Um, I, I am, Chema, I'm thrilled. I am so excited to kick this off. So excited. Yeah. John Carpenter, I, I, he might be my most favorite director of all time. Dude, I thought this was a great idea. And I'm not going to lie. When you said, hey, let's like focus on somebody, my mind immediately went to John Carpenter. And like 
that is partially a coincidence because I have um, had the opportunity to watch some of his uh, movies just at randomly throughout the course of the pandemic, which I've enjoyed very mm-hmm. much taking a stroll down a nostalgia lane. And you're right, man. Like this is this guy. It's is something special about him. And as we progress along into the episode and stuff, we'll touch on many of the details about his work and, you know, all the, the things that we enjoy about it, which I'm very much looking forward to. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and, and you know what, like I, there are, there, there are other candidates for sure for this kind of, uh, for this kind of treatment. But I think as, as you, you probably, you know, I mean, as we both already know anyway, but like, as our, like, at least my like additional research kind of bears out, there are just like there are so many directions that we can go with a discussion on John Carpenter, not just his horror movies. But we're gonna we're gonna talk here a little bit at least about his music. Um, mm-hmm. We're gonna talk about um, we're gonna talk about his influence uh, in, in other in other genres that aren't horror because that influence is there in in, in spades and right. other movies that aren't horror. Um, it's this is like this is a a very. Uh, I, I guess I mean I guess he is a horror auteur. I mean he really mm-hmm. his his style and everything is so distinct and his fingerprints are all over every one of his movies so so noticeably that like a John Carpenter movie is distinct from almost anyone else's kind of horror movie and I think that's why it's a really great place to start with or a really good person to start with. Oh, dude, definitely. And I'm glad that you brought out the A word, the auteur, very early on in the conversation. We're going to be using that a lot. And you could not be more right about that and stuff. His footprint is all over all over these movies in so many different ways and everything. And this is kind of like the horror auteurism that we rarely, rarely, rarely see. I probably say at the way most there's maybe 10 throughout the course of like history and stuff like that, that maybe hold the same kind of clout as John Carpenter. And, and that's a big if. I, I think, I think if you were to maybe like the person who would be in second place would be Cronenberg. Okay. Yeah. He's I, been I, around for a while. Been definitely. around for a while and, and a very, it's, you know, it's body horror, but it's also, it's also the, the weird quirkiness that is very much his and his alone. Like yes, you could, exactly. you could, you could show me a scene from something I've never seen before, and if it's by David Cronenberg, I would go, yeah, that's a Cronenberg movie right there that I'm watching. Yes, the weird quirkiness, and we're we're gonna dive. I know we're gonna get into a lot of that this episode. That's. I really wish that I had a better term for it because that's kind of how I describe it too. It's just these weird kind of off kilter quirkiness and things about these movies that are completely John Carpenter's and John Carpenter's alone. Yeah. Like there's, there's some stuff in here that I'm or in the outline and what I've typed out that I'm really, really excited to get into. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. So, so let's pop right into it then. Um, so you know, we've laid out a few reasons why we're, we're excited to, to start this off, but like what other things make John Carpenter like a good, a good person, a good individual to focus on and kind of stretch out a bunch of episodes about. Okay. So number one, like we're talking longevity, like this guy has been in Hollywood for 40, 50 years, something like that. And and it's not just like anybody who's had a career in Hollywood for 40 or 50 years. I mean, this is a guy who he's earned box office success. This guy has earned critical acclaim. He's got a cult following and believe me, like I, that term I do feel gets thrown around rather loosely in today's terms. But if we're talking about somebody that I believe to be the prototypical definition yeah. of, of cult following, John Carpenter is definitely one of these people. And like throughout the passing of time and like the invention of the invention of the internet, Carpenter has, he's got a whole new level of iconoclasm and stuff like that. And within the, not just within the horror community, but he's starting to kind of transcend that and to maybe like lose 
the horror label instead of being a horror filmmaker it is the filmmaker john carpenter and mm. stuff like that whereas i feel like in the um 80s and 90s the horror label would have been a little bit you know it'd have been a little bit more applicable but i feel over time he's starting to transcend a little bit and on top of the whole like longevity and all this stuff like like I said, really involved in the the making of his movies. There's not too many people that are like that. Even these guys that are like Spielberg and the Scorsese's, like Scorsese's not scoring his own material and everything like that. You know, Scorsese is right. maybe doing rewrites or something. He's not the guy sitting there behind the typewriter writing the script most of the time, at least not, not now, not modern day Scorsese anyway. And then the other thing that I think is um, particularly uh, particularly worth noting is that this dude has not just made like one, like, classic horror movie he's made many that have encompassed a wide kind of i don't know like sub genres or kind of like settings within the the horror genre as a whole and you get everything from like the slasher to the sci-fi alien horror to the religiously focused horror film with like prince of darkness you have fucked up kids with children of the damned you have this sort of like, I don't know, I, I don't really know what to call it, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, but like if The Fog is like an environmental horror movie, because I think it's like environmental adjacent because just because of this fog element, but sort not of, technically yeah. a horror movie in the sense that like the birds or some of the other like horror mo- or environmental horror mm-hmm. movies are. But this guy's like he's dipped his toes in so many different subcategories and areas of horror and like filmmaking and stuff like that, that it's just such a heralded and such an established career that there's almost like no way that we couldn't do something like this yeah you i i think i think that's the um that's what i'm, I'm just gonna say yes you're correct um uh, because if i add too much more to this i'm, I'm gonna kind of ruin ruin that whole wonderful thought you just put out there I, it's just the perfect way to do it man like he he is I, in particular i want to pick up on something the two things that you put out put out here is that we're not just talking someone who has like three or four hits we're talking someone that has like twelve legitimate like hit movies. Some of them took longer to be appreciated, um, and that's this where like the, the his um, status as like a cult classic icon, iconic or horror or iconic movie maker comes in. Is that like stuff like They Live and The Thing, um, and even The Fog took a little bit longer to be appreciated, um, but he did strike success big time with Halloween. He did strike um, success big time. Um, gosh, uh, even. In its own way, Assault on Precinct, Thir- Precinct 13 was like a big time movie mm-hmm. considering he made it for a micro budget and made a lot of money back. Yeah, um, it was like a 1.9 million generated 20 something million dollars, yeah. some crazy which, shit like that. Which yeah. I, I, it's one of those things you put it today, it'd be like a $10 million movie making like 100 back. Um, yeah. It's so like that's, that's humongous. That's big. So like it, it's, it, you know, he's made hits on, on various, on various levels commercial you know commercial hits crit- critical hits cult hits he's he's got an academy award that he won in the early 1970s um but he's also seen like complete and utter failure too which i think is an important mm-hmm. thing to to note here as we get into this um you know especially like the back end of his career like how things went really downhill that like even these sort of like and maybe it's something important to remember about all these like filmmakers that have really long careers it's not just hits there's a lot of misses there's plenty of misses we just don't talk about them that much um, and, and, and something else that you picked up on here, it's not just that, it's not just the horror movies were hits. Some of his other types of movies were hits too. Escape from New York mm-hmm. is not a horror movie. And that's one of his best known movies. It's, it's the movie that kind of helped, um, that helped break Kurt Russell away from like the, the Disney image that he had previously. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, that's, that's a, that's a big hit, right? And it breaks it, it but that's not a horror movie, even though there are 
horror tropes, and obviously, um, you know, John Carpenter can't stray too far away from horror in even his non-horror movies. But right, it's he has success in all venues of movies. He's not just one type of filmmaker. No, of course, dude. And I, I want to definitely um, take what you said about failure and everything like that because a lot of people really overlook like people's failures and stuff like that. And these kind of like these greatest of all times and like these people that have been around for a while and even these legends and stuff, the Rolling Stones have had many albums that have not done so well, you know what I'm saying? But those guys were set to play stadiums in 2020 until the coronavirus kicked in. There is just something about, I think greatness where failure almost kind of, it almost is kind of like that, like second head on the shoulder and stuff like there, where it's always going to kind of be there, but it's just fortunately like, you know, behind you to the point where people really focus on like your good stuff, you know, but you have to have failure in order to achieve greatness is what I, what I'm saying. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, I'm sure there's a, uh, there's some kind of quote we could insert there about that, but yeah. about success and failure. Um, yeah. But yeah, like you don't, uh, you definitely don't experience, you really can't appreciate, uh, you know, success if you don't experience failure or rejection or whatever else. And, um, you know, I mean, really, even even though there's like a bunch of films that we appreciate um, now uh, with Carpenter, uh, they live as a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe <sighs> Starman was like a critical hit, but it, and it, it did pretty well. But like, that's one that appreciated over time. Um, yeah. Same thing with Big Trouble in Little China was like a, a failure that people appreciate in time, have appreciated yeah. in time. Um, so like even even in even in like the successful movies that Carpenter has can claim now, they weren't successful at one point in time. No, exactly. And I read um like what is it? It's uh In the Mouth of Madness was made for like eight million dollars but grossed like eight million nine hundred thousand or right. something like that. Right. So like he's he's not going to the bank every single time and stuff like that. And like those are the experiences that I think like really shape and kind of mold filmmakers, especially when those like those kind of failures are like kind of peppered in throughout your career. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? It's not like he had like one failure, like all like in like, you know, bam, 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 bam. They're kind of like all spread throughout. And I think that that helped his development as a filmmaker. Absolutely. I would 100% agree with that. Um, so, you know, and I'm glad that you mentioned that you kind of went on a, uh, on a Carpenter binge recently. Um, I, I actually really have not, but I've seen enough of these movies enough times that I, I can pretty much talk about them just offhand. But, um, so for you, you know, what did you notice as like some key features of, of a John Carpenter movie? Okay. So there are some pretty basic ones, like, like isolation stuff like that and like paranoia and even just like the fear element, I guess at its basic like level. But I, I wanted to get into like one thing that I, um, that I personally have noticed about this and I want to, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. So, um, the best way that I can explain this is that all of his movies, they do have this certain, like, there's a certain highbrow element to them. And it's not just like stuff that's like, okay, whatever, it's good. There's stuff that he has that I feel is like really, really, really good storytelling, story elements, like uh, settings, whatever it is. There's something like really highbrow to all his work. And while you may be looking at a movie that has like a very, very simple story, like, hey, they have to escape from New York. It's the title of the movie. Mm -hmm. Or like, don't get killed by Michael Myers. Or even in like Prince of Darkness, where it's like, stop the devil. But there's something very, very intelligent about all of these movies. And like, take Escape from New York, for example. I feel that the idea of turning New York Island into this massive prison 
is such a genius idea. Okay. It is like, it is almost like this industrial complex type sci-fi that I don't think we see a whole lot of, and you don't really see movies like that, even today, making those kinds of making that kind of like simple, but super creative leap. And then talking about like Prince of Darkness, for example, um, in that movie, they pepper this kind of religiously focused and driven horror movie with science. And there's this big time science element and matter and energy and things like that that are discussed so much in the movie that I feel that a lesser filmmaker, you wouldn't have those like you wouldn't have like that kind of like level of writing. It would just be a bunch of people in a church getting loaded and banging and stuff like that. And then they get killed, but there wouldn't be this cool, like sciencey element that mm-hmm. almost explains everything as to what's going on. And even like with, um, would they live this, um, kind of like invasion horror. I, I I'm labeling it as an invasion movie, uh, for now until I do a little bit more research. I've only seen they live twice. And one of them was, um, within the last three months, but, um, they live the idea of presenting an invasion in this way where sunglasses do the big reveal and there's this whole other world in front um, in front of a pair of shades and stuff like that in an invasion movie like throughout the entire you'd see like a giant freaking ufo there'd be like the neighbor next door who's really weird and no one can figure out what he is what he's all about but they live having this really cool presentation of an invasion is just something that I feel that not a lot of filmmakers and stuff like that are going to get there. So the one consistent thing that, that I, that to give you the, the real answer that I wanted to give you was that there is just a certain level of intelligence about his movies that I do not see anywhere else. Yeah. I, I, what it, what it, what it is, I think even in something like, have you ever seen vampires? One time I wanted to rewatch it, but I'm not watching a James Woods movie anymore. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know. We, that's a whole other fucking can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Into. Um, but um, even even the concept of vampires is kind of like highbrow. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what I think what you're hitting on is that there there's simple compl- there's simple sort of there's simple sort of layouts, but like the idea is pretty high and mighty and pretty big. And, but then he grounds it by making this sort of absurd, like an absurd horror movie or an absurd action movie underneath it. That's right. That like Escape from New York is a big, loud, absurd action movie that is saying a lot about contemporary society, government, uh, you know, the way, you know, the way that policing is done. It's saying a lot of things in a very loud, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's such an obvious way that, that, that it's being, that it's making a commentary that it's not obvious, if that makes sense. I completely understand what you're saying. Like, just as an example, like, in, even in the end, when, like, Donald Pleasance could, like, barely look Snake Plissken in the eye for saving his life, it's just mm-hmm. a statement about how leaderships view the troops and everything like that. Yep. And, uh, like, yep. yeah, there's all this kind of deep stuff in there. That's right. And, like, that's kind of the stuff that I was always drawn to and everything. And um, one of the first times that I had saw Escape from New York, it was in the mid-90s. And that's the thing that really stuck with me was the fact that somebody – just had this idea of turning New York into this big prison island. Like I thought that was so fucking great as a kid, and I still think it's great. It's, I, it's hands down, it's like one of his best movies. Oh, a hundred percent, absolutely. And um, and you and you're kind of and you're hitting on something else here too. That like the ideas are kind of highbrow and they seem really big, but like it would be pretty easy to chain off Manhattan Island. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like <laughs> it would be pretty easy to chain off Manhattan Island. It would be pretty easy to infiltrate American society through advertising. Mm-hmm. 
because that's you know, right. companies already have. But yeah, that's um, right. oh yeah, <laughs> it, like and that and that's obvious. That's like the obvious commentary, and they live. But like these things aren't even something like vampires. You know, the the Catholic Church hiring groups of vampire hunters, uh, hiring groups of vampire hunters to kill vampires. That's like it almost kind of squares with the Bible. Mm-hmm. Like it, it it kind of makes sense. It's a weird step, but it's a step that's almost believable. Yeah, because like, oh my God, it's it's almost like the angels and demons things. Like the Catholic Church has got their own like little like private assassin group or something like that, which is like what Paul Bettany was or something. Like these religious people have these, I don't know, like assassiny, hit many type figures and stuff like that. Where in vampires, it is sort of like rooted in some truth and everything. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm glad you brought up that. Um, I, I I had something similar. I'll I'll just kind of add to it just a little bit. I had something similar that like like a lot of the world whatever the movie is the world that we're in is sort of this like it's it's like the, the world that's just beneath the surface that it's, mm-hmm. it's the underbelly it's the unseen so like if they yeah. live it's literally underneath the surface um you know in in the thing it's i i kind of i kind of turn this as like the underbelly but it's a little bit different it's just they're physically so far away from humanity that the things that are going on there are unknown to us Right. Mm-hmm. Big trouble in little China. Um, you're in you're in Chinatown in San Francisco and all the white people have no idea what's going on in in little Chi- uh, in Chinatown in, in San Francisco. But all the people that live there know about the occasional supernatural gods that touch down to do battle <laughs> in the streets. Um, right. Same, you know, same with vampires. Uh, Starman's very similar. There's just like there's something going on beneath the surface. So I'm glad you brought that up. And just like another thing that that kind of adds into this he does a really great job of of in not like in a claustrophobic way, but just in a, in a story way of confining our world. Like nothing really happens beyond. And this is why a lot of his movies are under two hours and they, they're, they're great, easy watches because like, we don't need to worry about what's happening elsewhere in the world. The story is the most important thing. And where we are in the story is the most important thing. So like everything is very confined in a good way. Right. And like with his like apocalypse trilogy that he made, Mm -hmm. like, it was always, I guess, implied that the apocalypse could happen, but it was never like the center focus of the whole thing. You know what I'm saying? It's not like we need to stop world, you know, the world collapsing or whatever. It's more or less about like, you know, I, I guess in the thing, maybe like killing a monster before stopping it before it could get out. That may be a little bit more broad, but um, with um, Prince of Darkness for whatever, it, it wasn't like that. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't mm-hmm. about like preventing the apocalypse. It was more or less about preventing the situation than the greater scheme of things. Right, right. And uh, and, and, and in the Mouth of Madness, you do kind of, you know, it's it's very heavily suggested that the apocalypse is actually happening at the end of okay. the movie. So, okay. um, it not, I shouldn't say suggested. It's basically confirmed that the apocalypse is happening. It just doesn't, not in the way that we thought it would happen in the thing, not in the way that we have, that we thought it would happen in the Prince of Darkness. Um, it's a different way, but it is happening. Okay. So yeah, that one, I, I have not seen that one in a very, very long time. I, I didn't get a chance to do that in my little, uh, JC movie marathon, but, um, it's good to know that at least at the end of the apocalypse trilogy, the apocalypse does happen. <laughs> it, it does, it does, and it, I'll tell you what—that's a, that's a really underrated. It's a really underrated Carpenter movie. Period. It's a really underrated Sam Neill movie. Like it's yeah, Sam Neill's great. Right. <laughs> Actually, he's great. 
Yeah, I think, God, I know that that movie, I remember it coming out like in my lifetime and I can remember seeing like movie posters all over this $1.50 theater in Euclid that we used to go to and stuff. And it, it was like, so I remember that movie kind of being like a thing at the time, but it, it kind of fizzled out like, um, you know, as soon as the, the reviews and everything came in. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. It, it Yeah, it, that was a blink and you miss it in theater sort of movie. But again, <laughs> one of his, I, I wouldn't say what a, a cult classic, but definitely a movie with a cult following. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like, especially over time, like, believe me, by the by the time 2040 rolls around and the way the Internet's going to be like pretty much every movie by every director is going to have a cult following. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> your your web series is going to have a cult following in 50 years. Oh, yeah. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything else here that uh, that you notice is like a feature of a Carpenter movie that uh, that you know is unique to him, maybe? Other than like, I noticed the way he presents the opening credits, I think is kind of like unique to himself, like just mm-hmm. the way the way the title cards is. It's almost in some of the movies, it's like this intercut title card sequence with footage and everything that uh, I've noticed is kind of like specific to his movies. Um, even just, I guess, like getting the ability to put John Carpenter's insert title here, mm-hmm. I would definitely consider that to uh that to be an achievement um the mixing of like the mixing of horror and sci-fi and stuff like that and then even like just nothing really like i guess too um extreme or in-depth just mostly just kind of like some peppered sure. in generalizations i guess yeah no for sure like i i kind of hit i kind of landed on some of the same things that were like obvious um you know he he does a really good he does a lot of his best movies are homages to other movies that he just kind of packaged differently um, okay. like assault on precinct, Thir- precinct 13 is a, is essentially an homage to this old John Wayne movie called Rio Bravo. Um, the thing is a remake of the thing from outer space. Um, right. he does, he does a lot of homages, but he does them in his very own distinct way. And then like, uh, this is something I, I really, I, I think all directors do this to a degree, but he does this to a very bizarre degree. He collaborates with the same actors and writers over and over again. Oh man, dude, you are so right on that. Like the um He Kurt Russell amount... was in five of his movies. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my god. And even um was it like uh Nancy Loomis, who is Nancy in um in the first Halloween, yeah. she's in three or four of his films. Um the sheriff in Halloween is in three or four Do- of his Donald movies. Donald Pleasance is in like six or seven. Yeah, oh d- definitely dude. Char- yeah, Charlie Cyphers is in like six or seven movies. Uh his right. his wife at the time, Adrian Barbeau, is like in five movies. Um, he, he hits, he, and like his, he was dating this woman for a while who just ended up becoming his writing partner. Deborah Hill, like is right. Is like his writing partner for his biggest movies. That's right. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. She was around for the, she's like an EP on Halloween and everything mm-hmm. like that. And they even like went into, um, as the Halloween franchise progressed, they were definitely like involved in it in some way, shape or form. And she kind of. I guess took a little bit of like a step back from him in the eighties, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. they weren't really so much of, I mean, I'm assuming it's probably because of their relationship or whatever, Yeah. but um, early on, like she was there from the get go. Like she's just as much of a part of the Halloween franchise as yep. he is. Yep. Absolutely. She is. So there you go. There's some, there's some carpenter, some carpenter features that I would call them. These are, these are things that are carpenter esque and I, I can almost sure. guarantee you in the coming years, that's going to be in the dictionary. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Without a doubt, man. Yeah. Anything you could add esque to anything and they might even have to create a separate dictionary for all the esque things that are, that are out there. Absolutely. They will. Don't worry. At some point in time, there's going to, at some point in time, there's going to be a Chmielewski-esque for something in the dictionary. I just hope it's for something good and for your sake. 
you have no idea how much I want to, how much I cannot agree with you on that, dude. Like, I like all I want is it to be something good. That's it, or, <laughs> That's or at it, least man. not totally negative. Like, yeah, that, yeah, that it's when you when you get caught with your pants down, literally, and then like some terrible thing happened to you after that, right? Yeah, I mean, like, if I'm going to be the guy who gets drunk and does something, please let it be funny, not something really, really stupid. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> All right. So, do you have anyone? Um, and this could you could have multiple because I have actually have multiple people for this um, uh, for this particular uh, part of the outline here. But do you think there's anyone that you would point to as our the current generation's John Carpenter? Okay, so I'm going to kind of break this off. I do have a little bit of multiples. The the first sure. like two people I don't really have too much on because they're very very early in their careers, and that's Astor and Eggers, like those guys. Mm. I do believe are on the trajectory to get to that level. They might even get there. They might even exceed uh, Carpenter's level of iconoclasm and everything. The way that their careers are going, pretty much the sky's the limit. I don't think that they are as good a candidate as the person that I'm going to um, get into a little bit more in depth, just basically because of the catalog. Like those guys, they don't have the the catalog and the library and the body of work as the person Mm -hmm. I'm about to discuss. But I do feel that um, in time, those guys, like for the for the youngest, for like the generation that's below us, and maybe even the one that's below that, um, Astor and Eggers are, are definitely like those are some really blossoming um, flowers for sure. I, but just, the guy, can I can I sorry. piggyback off you real quick here since you you hit one of mine? Go for it, bro. Yeah, just because it it wasn't a deep thing either. But yeah, I, I had Ari Astor down, um, and it's not that he's like borrowing from Carpenter. Like he's in terms of my list here. He's the only one mm-hmm. that doesn't borrow from Carpenter in any particular way. But yeah. in 30, 40 years, we'll be talking about Ari Aster the same way that we talk about John Carpenter and like his unique style and everything that he does uniquely to himself. Oh, yeah. He's going to be the he's the pagan guy right now. Like mm-hmm. he's uh, this guy. He's got a bright, bright future yeah. ahead of him. And um, the dude that I'm going to um, to dive into a little bit deeper here, this came to my mind. And um, I do believe that like for when we're saying our generation, I'm kind of like starting it in high school and stuff like that. Like when we were able to kind of consciously view movies a little bit from a yeah. little bit more of like a realistic, you know, sure. kind of uh, perspective and everything. And I'm going for Eli Roth. Mm. And so I chose Eli Roth um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first reason is, is that he actually does kind of follow a similar career path to Carpenter while making a um, couple of short films and everything, and then having some big time success early on in his career with uh, Cabin in the Woods and then with Hostel and everything. And um, I will also kind of uh, kick this up a little bit of a notch and say that um, Eli Roth and John Carpenter also kind of like maybe reestablished a genre because we know that the slasher and everything kind of psycho giving birth to that whole genre but the halloween series definitely like in my opinion kind of reestablished the slasher kind of reopened the doors of that um specific subgenre to a whole new audience the same way that eli roth did with the hostile movies and he it's not the slasher it's this kind of quirky torture killer porn i don't really know what to what yeah to call it's, it or it's, tor- it's torture porn um for torture sure porn. but like it's it was an early torture porn movie so mm-hmm. like it, it was unique at the time yeah, definitely. It was like one of these kind of things like Hostel. I remember there are just so many references to Hostel and like what, you know, people say is like Hostel or, hey, that's like Hostel that this guy, at least in terms of in terms of like our people our age, I do feel was the guy that opened up this 
kind of torture porn genre and stuff like that. And I mean, God only knows it's been taken to crazy extremes ever, uh, ever since this whole thing happened. I don't think it's going anywhere, but I do kind of think that hostile did the same thing for torture porn that Halloween did for, um, did for the slasher and stuff like that. And, uh, these guys throughout their, uh, filmographies, which are actually pretty vast, like Eli Roth is not as, not as diverse, I guess, like when it comes to, um, not at all. His yeah. choice in movies or anything like that. But there is just something about the, I guess, like I'm going to use this term again, like this weird quirkiness about some of the Eli Roth stuff that I do kind of find comparable to uh, to John Carpenter mm-hmm. and everything like that. So um, I also think that some of them, like to a um, to a certain degree, like, you know, their lesser known movies have kind of established their own little mini cult followings. And, and again, with that work, which we're going to probably see so many more times this episode. Probably. <laughs> yeah. But um, and so like, uh, yeah. So let me see the last like little paragraph I hear is just, um, yeah, whether it's the isolation themes or the anti signature anti-hero character of Carpenter or Roth's exploitation of blood and gore fuckfest, they truly do have their own specific styles and brands and audiences, which is, and I do think that those audiences, there's some parallels there between the, the films, the audiences, everything. And that's why I chose Eli Roth for this answer. I am very curious to see what people think about Eli Roth in like a decade or two decades. Um, because like I, I, there's things he does that I like and there's things that I'm just like, why did we need to? And by the way, you meant Cabin Fever, not Cabin in the Woods. Um, Kevin, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin Fever. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Uh, Kevin, right. Kevin, Kevin of the Woods, uh, Drew Goddard, and Joss Whedon wrote that one, I think. Um, That's right. But, uh, yeah, but Kevin Fever, like, and actually, glad, Kevin Fever, why did you need to remake the same movie that you made, like, a decade prior? Wait, is that what he did? Was there two Kevin yeah. Fevers within? Yeah. Really? He remade his own movie. And it's basically the same. There's a little bit, there's a little difference to it. Like, I don't understand why he decided to do that. I, like, I, I'm... I, I'm just very curious, and and to me, he's doing a very interesting impression of what Takashi Miike has been doing in Japan for like forty years. Mm-hmm. Um, not that not that there isn't any originality. I'm just very curious to see what what people think about him, what film critics think about him twenty years from now. I have a feeling that he might end up getting remembered as just as Sergeant Donnie Denovitz from Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, but um, I don't know. Like I, he is young enough, um, at least now. And he does have like enough, like, you know, kind of clout within the industry to have some kind of like big time, like resurgence and everything. But he's right now, I think a little bit too like stuck in his own genre to broaden his horizons the way that um, the way that Carpenter did. But like in in terms of some of the horror stuff and some of their in, in their career paths and everything like that, I, that's that's kind of like what I draw to. And like Roth did some TV stuff and Carpenter's done TV stuff. So the, their toes are definitely dipped in different sure. pools. And actually, Eli Roth did compose. A, so he has a soundtrack credit for uh, what I think is like the Hostel theme song or something mm-hmm. like that. It's used in both Hostel one and two. So I'm assuming it's like some like little piece of music that they use in both movies. But um so yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm seeing here. And like, I, for me, I, I remember this guy kind of debuting and kind of becoming something like right around the time that we were outside of high school. And, um, we've kind of been able to like follow his career, like, you know, ever since. And, oh, for sure. um, yeah. I, I'm interested. You're right. Like in about, you know, 20, 30 years, we'll see what his, um, we'll see what his career is, but I'm not, you know, I'm not ruling him down and out yet. And I think it's just a matter of time before we hear from him again with something unique. I, I would I would not disagree. I am he is one of the, he is one of those filmmakers that had that flashed 
quite a bit of quite a bit of promise early on, but yeah, just sort of uh, just sort of stalled out recently. That's that's when I when I when I heard that he was redoing Cabin Fever, which didn't need to be redone at all. Like I actually I enjoy what exactly what Cabin Fever is. Um, it didn't need it didn't need any redoing at all. That was one of those that was one of those things. I'm like, oh, so you're like out of ideas totally, <laughs> right? Yeah, and like, which is crazy because some of his other stuff, like these really like crazy exploitation and gore fest stuff that he makes, like the thanks kill, the thanks killing, and he's got this like weird, obscure, like almost kind of like jungle type uh, horror the Green blood fest. The Green Inferno, yeah. yeah. And I would think with ideas that are this bizarre, that he would have like a plate of like really crazy and bizarre things to come from, and like the hearing that he went ahead and remade his own movie. That's in a way it is kind of disappointing. It's not even like one of these things that is like so punk rock or whatever, you know, like I, I don't think it's anything like that. It's actually striking me to be very, very unusual. It is. It's a little unusual, but I, I but I, I don't disagree with you at all in terms of like someone that has a very particular vision and a very particular style that it just is. It's almost incomparable. Who is your, who is your um, selection? So we already covered Ari Aster there, so won't need to go back over him there. Um, I'll go. I'll start with one here that's it's an obvious one, but it's it's not obvious in the way you think. Um, Jordan Peele is going to kick this off for me because, mm-hmm. like like John Carpenter, I think Jordan Peele is starting a new genre of horror of this racial horror. Mm-hmm. Um, John Carpenter started suburban horror. Um, you know, we you know you talked about a Halloween is like the slasher movie. And, you know, obviously, um, we, we did last year, we did the whole thing on Psycho, uh, you know, as the first slasher movie. But, and there, there had been others between 1960 and 1978, but there wasn't anything like Halloween yet. And Halloween gave birth to this whole genre of, of these horror movies, be they slasher, be they fantasy horror, like, um, you know, like, you know, the Freddy franchise, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, or the, you know, the Jason franchise where like the horror, the monster is like in literally in your backyard. And that's the genre that John Carpenter like started. Um, and now like, you know, go ahead and good luck finding a movie like that before Halloween. There isn't one. Um, in the same way that Jordan Peele is making, is making racial horror movies that never really existed before. Um, you can find, you can find, you know, you can find black, black centric, African-American centric horror movies like the Candyman, but, the, but like the horror part of it is about racism race relations mm-hmm. that's that's what's setting Jordan Peele apart and then additionally sorry I had a cough there for a second additionally very much like John Carpenter he's done a pretty good job of repackaging his pop culture and horror movie homages in a very particular way so like he's he is rehashing ideas that I mean again there's no such thing as original stories and original filmmaking at this point in time in human culture <laughs> But right. he's done a really good job of taking these ideas and repackaging them for something like Get Out. It's just it's it's brilliant. It's it, you know it's paying homage to the things that came before, but but treading new ground at the same time. That's what John Carpenter did. That's what Jordan Peele does. Totally, I could totally see that. And you're right. He is definitely starting his own genre. And with Get Out to be that first kind of that first like step into creating the genre is just like, it's a monumental thing. I mean, for a horror movie to take home the best original screenplay uh, and even to get nominated for best picture of the year. Like to me, that's, this is going to be something that transcends like 
the horror label and stuff like that is really like a matter. There's not too many people out there that haven't seen get out is, is what I'm saying here. Right. So there's like, this definitely a phenomenon um, behind him and behind his work and everything. I do believe that his best days are so they're ahead of him, dude. Like even though get out is get out is good. Us. I, I don't think us is as good as get out. I no, think there are some no. parts of us that are very, very interesting, but comparing the two, um, Get Out is by far and away the um, superior movie, and I just believe that like he's got so many like brighter days ahead of him. The one thing that I I do want from him is I don't want him to like spread himself too thin, and um, I'm not gonna lie like I Hunters I'm Hunters I'm still kind of trying to get through and stuff like that. There's some stuff about Hunters that I really really love there's some stuff about hunters that I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of. Mm -hmm. And I do think that he's put a little bit way more actually effort into Lovecraft country. And I think the difference like totally shows, you know, whatever, whatever, if he chopped up his day, Lovecraft country definitely got the more time and everything. And I just don't want him to take on so many things to where it starts to affect or impede his movie making process. Cause that's where I think he's actually going to shine. And I think this TV stuff or whatever, it's really, it's good stuff. It's a great money maker. It's a good thing to get involved in projects, but he's movies is where he is, is at. For yeah, sure. no, I a hundred percent agree with you. And I would love to see him tackle. Um, I would love to see him. I would love to see him tackle something like a escape from New York type movie, because I mm -hmm. feel like you, and we're going to, I'm going to talk about this later. Uh, and I'm sure you will too. I'm going to talk about like how like the commentary from 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 a movie like Escape from New York is yeah. sort of pretty timeless and you could you could take that concept and apply it to Jordan Peele's idea of racial horror. Easily. Yes. Easily. Oh yeah. Definitely, dude. And some of the statements that he's making like they are definitely like there's like a really great historical context. So what I'm saying here is that like the statement that he's making is that hopefully like, you know, in it won't be like that in time in the right. real world, but his statements that he is making are so relevant to the way that the world is now. And I just, I'm saying that I don't want like the statements to continue the, the, the racial stuff or whatever definitely needs to end. I would need to make this clear, but um, what he's doing now is just, it's such a great statement about, oh, for sure. about everything that's going on Absolutely. in the world. So yeah, so there you go, Jordan Peele, um, and then I'm I'm gonna go to two that are very much like John Carpenter um, in both like their filmography and then their style. Uh, I'll start with the lesser known one here, but are, are you familiar with Jeremy Saulnier? The name does sound familiar. What has he done? It's he's only done a couple of movies, but in particular, I'm picking on his movie Green Room. Oh yeah, the with Vigo and stuff like that. that no, movie? no, with uh, with Anton oh, Yelchin and Anton Yelchin and um, and Patrick Stewart. Sorry, that's right. Okay, yep, got the two of them confused. Sorry about that. Yeah, but Green I Room have... is definitely not like Green Book. Uh, although there's yeah. there are racists in Green Room. Um, okay, <laughs> it's uh, the movie's about the movie's about a, a punk rock band that plays uh, for a group of fascists, and it's the whole guys is that they're there. I think they I think they actually I'm sorry they witness a murder, but. Um, but also they were brought there basically just to be taunted and possibly beat up anyway. And it, it really, this he's, I'm pretty sure this is a Blumhouse movie and Blumhouse movie. It might as well be called Carpenter house movies. Um, all the Blumhouse movies they're mm -hmm. They just borrow directly from John Carpenter. Not like in a bad way. I mean, the, the Halloween remake is it's a Blumhouse movie. Um, yes. 
um, so they they borrow they they borrow and pay homage to John Carpenter. Almost all those movies do. Um, and this one in particular is like neo Nazis meets Assault on Precinct Thirteen, and uh, and for that matter, Escape from New York. Um, and the visual style is just this sort of confined, like gritty. Um, it's it's hyper violent, like Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Well, at least for nineteen seventy six, it was. Um, mm. You know, it's it's that same kind of like not shying away from the violence. Um, the people have to kind of band together, even though they kind of don't like each other. They got to figure out a way to get out of it. Um, it, it. It's it's a very gritty look at what like a John Carpenter that kind of John Carpenter movie would look like in modern times. Is what Jeremy Solnier did. Oh yeah, and I know what you now that you shined a little light on this for me i know exactly what you're talking about and i've watched about an hour of this movie drunkenly one mm-hmm. night or whatever and um it is basically everything that you just said it is totally fucking gritty i remember like certain scenes kind of taking place in like this i don't know like white supremacist house kind of thing or whatever like you know wherever, it's like, like a whole compound guys, that they have yeah yeah it, kind of similar to what they have in american history x with like the barn and stacy mm-hmm. kitchen all that stuff mm-hmm. and I remember like um, I just remember like certain things with the lighting and it being like really fucking creepy and kind of like disturbing and just kind of riling up those emotions of disgust and everything at fascists and everything like that, which uh, yeah. you should have those emotions when you are watching anything about fascism. So, yeah, absolutely. yes. So I do know what you're talking about. Um, and yeah, after a little after you kind of clarifying that whole thing, know what you're talking about. Definitely agree with you on yeah. that. So yeah, so uh, so Jeremy Solnier's uh, I haven't I don't know I I don't think I've I don't believe I've seen anything else from Jeremy Solnier, but I have to I have to relook his filmography up even though it's pretty limited. And then one that is a guy that is shockingly like um like um Carpenter in both the the early success and the types of movies that he's types of movies that he's branched out into since his early success. Uh, James Wan, um of Saw fame, uh, The Conjuring. Oh. Um, yeah, the Saw feels like Saw in so many ways now. In retrospect, feels like an early John Carpenter movie. Um, just totally feels like it. Um, the way the Conjuring, the way the Conjuring looks and feels. It's, granted, it's a movie I haven't seen in a little while. The Conjuring looks and feels like a like a um, like a Carpenter movie. Even when he branched out into other things, like um, the Kevin Bacon movie Death Sentence, that mm-hmm. feels like a John Carpenter action movie. Um, it, it's it is he is taking and paying homage to Carpenter in almost everything that he does, um, and it's again he's he's also a Blumhouse director, um, who's also he might have made the best of the Fast and Furious sequels, oddly enough, uh, Fast yeah, and Furious you... Seven. <laughs> okay, okay, gotcha. That's yeah. right. Because I remember because he did Aquaman and stuff yep, like that, correct. which I I I did obviously me being a DC guy, I did enjoy Aquaman, and yep. um, there's a lot of really fucking cool kinds of things with Aquaman, like the, um, the trench and all those kind of like crazy creatures and everything. Mm -hmm. And he did such a great job on the visuals. And, uh, it has been a minute since I have seen the conjuring too. So I'm, I'm not entirely like, I I can't make a decent comment about that, but I will definitely say that the saw movies. Yes. This is like one of those kind of higher brow intelligence of horrors that I was talking about earlier in the um, earlier in the episode where the idea of this game and it costing your life and you really have to go through these crazy extremes to get out of it. And even just the way that the Saw movie was presented and the way that the big twist was at the end and stuff like that. I mean, it was just like a really, really intelligent concept for horror. And that's probably why it spawned. God only knows how many sequels and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, how many uh, sequels of, of like radioactive decay 
each one just getting worse and worse and yeah. worse. Oh. But, but, but nonetheless, you know, your, your claim to fame as James Wan is that you started one of the most successful franchises of all yeah. time. Right. And oh man, I remember I saw Saw 3 in the theater and me and Jason Wood actually saw Saw 3 in the theater. We got we got drunk in like the uh, parking lot of Cinemark before mm-hmm. we uh, before we went into the theater. And we were only doing it because we were going to see Mushroom Head at midnight needed like to kill three hours. So we're in the theater and um, we're trying to like find our seats. It's a packed house. It's Halloween weekend. We do find two seats that are open and like I am so loaded. I go to sit down and I totally miss the seat and <laughs> fall down and we're talking like the sound of like beer bottles and cans and stuff like that, that we get snuck <laughs> into the theater, hitting the floor and stuff. And it wasn't necessarily my most proud moment, but I did recover very nicely <laughs> or as nice as you can. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. Oh, memories of saw three. I hope I, I don't honestly, I don't, I've seen several of the sequels and they just like, they're a blur. Yeah. It's, they're it is all, yeah, dude, it's all like one crazy freaking mess to me. And I know that the uh, the girl from Anger Management is in like a couple of them. And then Tobin Bell, may, dude, it's just it's too hard to follow. I mean, it really, really is and stuff like that, man. I just I, I kind of had to take a step back from it as far as like watching anything beyond. I think Saw 5, I think might have been the last one I saw. You made it farther than I did. That's for sure. <laughs> Admit it farther yeah. than I did, but yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, I, I would I would say James Wan has this very odd, similar career to to John Carpenter and sort of the beginnings and like what what his career has become now, um, you know, getting handed bigger and bigger movies. Um, I, I think James Wan is also just in general just a little bit underrated as a director, um, but uh, you know, whatever my opinion. So there you go, uh, Jordan Peele, James Wan, Jeremy Saulnier, and the previously mentioned Ari Aster, sort of like the air the air parents or like the current. Uh, John Carpenter-esque filmmakers to me. Very good list. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, so do you think, and this is, this is a question I struggled with when really thinking about, and it's, it will get to it, the thing about the end of his career. Do you think like a Carpenter movie still works in modern times? You know, why or why not? Okay. I think it's like a, for me, it's a yes and no. And I'm going to try to explain this as best as I can, because the yes part I think is the easiest, the easier one where, all this like um, intelligence stuff that I've been talking about and everything, those are so good of ideas. They're still going to work today. You know what I'm saying? Like if there was no, let's just say, for example, that like escape from New York never came out. And all of a sudden we had this movie where New York was a prison Island that starred like a young action stud, like John Cena or something mm-hmm. like that. That movie's going to be a success. Like he, he, that, that script, he could have wrote that 20 years ago, made it today. And it would still work because of the, the intelligence behind the writing and everything like that. Halloween, I do think, is still going to work. It might be a little bit more gory, but the general principle, I mean, they've been doing it forever. It's not going anywhere. So the, the, the those kinds of movies, I think, is definitely still going to work. Where I have a little bit of a problem with what won't work, and I, I tried as best I could to think of an example for this. And Now, The Thing, The Thing itself, like the brand and everything, if they were to remake The Thing it would definitely make money just because of the thing, the name and the brand and all that, that that's going to get it in the door. But I don't think that like creature horror is in right now. I don't necessarily think that that would work so much in today's setting. Um, audiences over time, like uh, have gotten smarter to a certain degree. And I do believe that in this course of intel- of audiences wising up, 
the notion of the big scary creature like other than Godzilla or like some type of established like some type of like previously established creature like maybe even the Jeepers Creepers one might be somewhat due for a reboot here in the next like five or ten years but I, I don't know I just I don't think that some of the creature stuff would work today you know like if he had even like um even in like prince of darkness for example the intelligence and the writing and everything that would i I could definitely see that that same kind of thing being in a movie today but i don't know maybe like the idea of like the devil being passed around via being spit up by water so it's not necessarily um i guess maybe it's not necessarily uh like presentation elements or something maybe it's just like simple mechanics and things like that from his uh earlier stuff that wouldn't necessarily translate into a movie today but i I do think that there's enough um there's enough like of a foundation of intelligence and his writing and everything that a lot of it could work but there'd be some things that i don't believe would work and that's strictly because audiences have gotten more intelligent yeah, but it'll be 20 years before they get done again. Yeah, no, you're right. And you made a really good point about um, when we were talking last week, okay, or the last episode, and you had made that, um, like, feels like the very, very first time in this, the point about um, episodic television and these longer story arcs and mm-hmm. things like that. And, okay, now, what if, like, everything just basically becomes, it goes full circle to the point where, like, episodic tv seems like something new and fresh and we lightly touched on this in in last uh the last episode and like what i'm thinking is is that since you know we're starting to see just longer storylines everything feels like a movie that if this becomes so popular and popular that eventually it would make sense to me that it would everything would reset over time and something that is episodic would feel fresh, you know? Yeah. So I'm thinking that that same logic would apply to audiences where they're only going to get so smart and that, and it's just going to, that, that intelligence or whatever might like plateau eventually. And then the more and more that they're kind of like exposed to the same things and like these kind of like more modern, like, you know, shooting techniques that the idea of a crazy creature movie in 40 years or something might be ridiculously scary because nobody has, nobody's really seen it. I just, I'm not seeing the creature thing as like a, as something that's super popular today. And I know that they're making these movies and they got a bunch of like lots of pastors and crazy, like, you know, those kind of like crazy sci-fi channel movies or whatever, but I'm not seeing mainstream success of creature horror today. I think that audiences have wound up a little bit. Yeah, no, it, it, that's that's what I mean. It's just it's just a matter of taste in that regard. Um, the same reason why we haven't had many, we haven't had many. Uh, I shouldn't say we've many because there seems like there's about like one every year. But for a while there, it felt like we got like a lot of like heroic war movies, and that's kind of tamped down a little bit. Oh yeah, I mean we still yeah. get like you still get like your 1917 or your Dunkirk or whatever. But for a while there in the 90s, it felt like we got like four of them per year, maybe five per year. Um, yeah. you know, from various from various books and various adaptations and things, um, and like that sort of tailed off, and like the war movies we do get are, you know, they're they're smaller they're smaller scale stuff like like an American Sniper, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's stuff like that is like kind of what we're what we're being presented. Even even nineteen seventeen is a long shot essentially following two soldiers. Um, That's right. So like you know we're not getting like the this we're not getting them the same way. 
10 years from now, dude, I'm telling you, we'll get them the same way again. Oh yeah, dude. I remember, I know exactly what you're talking about with that resurgence of like the, of like in the nineties and stuff like that, when it's almost kind of felt like when saving private Ryan came out and everybody learned how to shoot these large scale battle scenes Mm -hmm. and stuff, then they were just pumping it out left and right, left and right, left and right. And you're, and now you, once again, you you definitely make a good point that the war stories now are a little more condensed. They're not as large, you know, there is a big battle scene. The Hurt Locker follows around three people basically. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, like that kind of like Fury or whatever is like a bunch of dudes mm-hmm. in a tank and stuff, yep. you know, so at some point in time, it is going to come back around. It's just it's just it's weird because like, I there's no way in hell I'm predicting it. But like I just am imagining like what is the movie that's going to be like, oh, my God, did you guys see that battle scene? It was like nothing I've ever seen before. Like what is what is the movie that's going to bring everybody um, back to full circle? Right. You know, you know what I think? You know what I think it might be? Not not a specific movie or anything. But, like, in terms of, like, a battle scene, it's going to be a fictional battle. Mm-hmm. Um, like, just something from, you know, just something that's just totally made up. Or we're going to have, like, a really, like, Christopher Nolan's going to be like, you know what? I want to take on this, like, obscure battle from, like, the like the 17th century that where, like, a million people died. Uh, right. And, like, he's going to make it awesome. Yeah, it'll be, like, one of these movies where, like, the whole thing is the battle. Almost like imagining the uh, the Battle of Winterfell, but turned into, like, a two-and-a-half-hour type right. thing that was shot in all, like, 70 millimeter and stuff like that. That's a, definitely a Christopher Nolan. Uh, yeah, it sounds exactly. like a mission that he would go on. Exactly. Um, yeah, so, no, I mean, like, I, I think you, you're hitting, for me, like, I'm going to agree with you. You're hitting on something really particular that I think the, the way that Carpenter does satire and comedy is totally timeless. Um, and you, th- like you picked up something, uh, you went exactly where I went with it. Es- you could make another escape from movie, escape from, I don't know, Chicago, escape from fucking Miami, whatever you want to make it escape from Moscow, whatever. And you could take that knowing that the idea, like the reason why you're making it is you're making a commentary on a, a particular place in time. Um, that, so if you were to, if you were to do like escape from Moscow, it's about, you know, escaping from government corruption. It's about escaping from fascists. It's about escaping from this place that's taking away your rights. It's about escaping from racism. Like, that's what you're escaping from, escape from Moscow. And just apply it to any place, any city that has a a problem with those kind of things, and that's what you're escaping from. Um, Mm -hmm. They Live could be a movie right now that's brand new with just some slight modifications. Like you look down at your phone, and underneath your underneath like the Instagram post, you could see uh, "marry and reproduce" or you know "sleep, obey." <laughs> right. Um, like literally, just slight updates, and that movie takes place right now. Um, but I think I think things like I'm going to disagree with you on this. I think things like Halloween, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, even Starman are like inextricably tied to their era. Um, okay. In part because we're not. We're not afraid of the suburbs anymore. Uh, the suburbs don't present, present, present like any paranoia for us, uh, um, and that's just more of like an a cultural attitude shift. It is about it is about you know the goings on in the inner city and like the cities right now, the Democrat mm-hmm. controlled cities, as Trump would tell you, that are out of control. Um, right. That's kind of shifted back. Uh, I think Big Trouble in Little China. I don't know how you can make. I, I know The Rock was in talks to redo this movie. I don't know how you can make that movie now. Like it, it's even even in the '80s, it feels like a little bit too magical and mystical. And okay. if you were to advance that to 2020, how are you going to square our advancements in tech and everything else with mag- with Chinese magic and mysticism? 
Like it, it just doesn't square. And the way and the way Starman is, the government would find them within fucking five seconds of them trying to escape. <laughs> you know, there'd be fucking drones yeah. everywhere hitting them with missiles. Like it just it doesn't work. Yeah, I got I, that. I I definitely understand what you're saying in that. And and you're right about these the cultural attitude shift of like being afraid of the suburbs and everything like that. I get you're right. I mean, I guess that's one of those things. Like as societal fears. As society evolves, societal fears also evolve too. And even in like the seventies, like I guess the suburbs was a was like sort of like uncharted territory. To it was still pretty degree, new. You the know? suburbs were still yeah. pretty new. Yeah, that's right. And like I guess I didn't really think about it like in that regards with like the um with the, the, the being afraid of like the suburbs and everything like that. But you make a really good point about the um about cultural attitude shifts and everything. And the big trouble in Little China thing, um, yeah, you that right there that's something i definitely could not agree with you more on because when it comes to mysticism in general uh technology can do so much nowadays that certain i guess like maybe mystical things from the past are not going to be considered as mystical anymore Mm -hmm. and it's just once again like um audiences being desensitized to um you know like i guess just like crazy stuff that technology can do so um so yeah yeah yeah, definitely on that and yeah starman yeah any kind of thing involving escaping from the government uh it's really hard to believe nowadays i mean like any of these times where like these movies where characters are on the run and stuff it just i don't know part of it it just doesn't seem as believable as it did in the olden days because of drones and because of traffic cameras and all that kind of stuff so yeah you're definitely right they get nuked in a second all right, Chema. So let's wrap up this portion of the of our talk on Carpenter with, if you were like, if you were like in a producer at a at a studio, film or TV, otherwise, whatever doesn't really matter. Um, what kind of project would you give to Carpenter's his comeback comeback vehicle? Like, what would you hand him to say, like, take this, this is yours. I, I want to see what you do with it. Okay, I got I got three answers here. I just like I'm gonna make them all as quick as I can, but I just I had to cover some territory, especially because sure. there's a personal thing in it here for me. So, if uh, just in, in general, without like naming a specific project, I would throw Carpenter something in the realm of psychological horror. And please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but like I don't think that his filmography really taps into psychological horror, at least on the level that what we've seen it today. Yeah, and, I, I would um, I would tend to agree with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like there's definitely some psychological elements, but it's not a psychological horror in the in the way that like the killing of the sacred deer might be a psychological horror film or something mm-hmm. like that. So um, as an in general project, I would throw him something psychological horror. It's very, very, very hot right now as something on um, for economics and some a project that is already in the works and somebody that I, a project that I would take from somebody and get to John Carpenter is and I just this popped into my head last night. So just kind of bear with me on this one. Cause I watched assault on precinct thir- precinct 13 last night. Um, maniac cop. Okay. Now oh, maniac cop. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Now I growing up as a kid, um, I saw the maniac cop. There's actually more than one movie, believe it or not. Oh, I, oh, um, I my, know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, my dad used to, um, be a UPS driver. And on his delivery route, he would go to this video store called star video, which was in like Beachwood or somewhere on the, on the side. And they would give him 
promotional copies of tapes that they would get like, you know, weeks in advance and stuff like that. So like once every six weeks, he would come home with like a fresh box of movies. And some of these were definitely not popular. Most of these were definitely straight to video movies, but occasionally he did come home with something cool. Like um, he, he got scream, like he got scream, like even before it got re-released in the theater. So I had the, the VHS of scream while everybody else was going to the theater to see it, which is one of my all time greatest achievements. So um, the maniac cop movies were movies that I got into because of these like little free promotional videos. Mm. So, um, now currently the maniac cop brand is, I don't know why, but they gave it to Nicholas winding Refn, which it just seems like a really weird choice. And I guess he's a fan or whatever. Um, but I don't know. I, I, the way Refn is and stuff and knowing his style, I'm not necessarily sure that maniac cop, is in the best hands. So I would give this franchise 100% to John Carpenter as a big comeback. And the way that the police and everything like that in America is today, I kind of think that this project is definitely relevant. It's definitely relevant about mm-hmm. just a crazy cop going around and killing people. And there's definitely like some body horror elements in it too, which um, I think would, would be great for uh, John Carpenter to tackle. And also, like, I just think that this is one of these kind of weird quirkiness kind of things that was right up his alley. I'm actually almost surprised that uh, that he didn't have to take on this movie himself, even though it does star uh, Sam Atkins, Tom Atkins. It does star Tom Atkins, who had made um, some appearances in John Carpenter's mm-hmm. movies. So this this right here is a project that I just I think it's totally him. It's something that is just made for John Carpenter. I would even I would cast somebody as like John Cena, like a big, like kind of scarier dude that can also act and has a little bit of a personality, kind of the same way that Bruce Campbell was cast in the movie, too. Like just like a big kind of goofy dude that, you know, has that movie face and everything. And they could kind of take the story and not really do too much to it. I mean, I mean, it could almost be like one of these shot for shot remakes in a modern setting and still it would work. It would definitely work. So that is my like, you know, business thing. And now I'm going to throw my personal one in here. My personal one, dude, if there was ever going to be something that would be his, either his comeback or his parting gift with the world, I want him to reboot Halloween just as himself. And I know that it's kind of like maybe a little bit with like the Eli Roth thing, you know, but I mean, it's not obviously not 10 years later. We have a lot of time and a lot of really bad sequels in between, but I do not believe that the Halloween sequels post Halloween three, because Michael Myers wasn't in Halloween three. They just haven't really grasped what, they did in the first two movies and believe me this has gone through rob zombie who's who's a genius horror director and stuff and he did a great job with it but i still don't even really think that we really got what the first movie was i don't there's something about rob zombie where it was like a little bit too rob zombie for the for a halloween reboot Mm -hmm. so my personal thing is just to let him come back and reboot the franchise give him full complete control give him whatever the hell he wants give him all the money give him the ability to cast whoever he wants let him tell the story however he wants and i also want it to be one of these like like three movies kind of written at the same time and if he gets to complete all three of them more power to him but if he if something happens where he he passes away because he is on the older side have it to be something that's already finished for somebody else to to take up 
And honestly, dude, like that's that's just like my own personal opinion. I'm a big fan of the Halloween franchise. It's my favorite of all the slasher and kind of horror franchises out there. And without getting into like just a crazy tangent about details and things that I that I think are wrong, like I I just think that these movies um, that have followed the original two and have not they just haven't hit it. There's something missing. It's. I don't know if it's like his writing. I don't know if it's like maybe like his style. I don't know if he, maybe they're not even using the music properly, but there's something about the sequels that just really do not hit the way that the first two did. So that's, that's what I would do, man. I would just, as a personal like thing for Adam Chmielewski, just to bring him back in on this one final time to like, I don't know, give us the modern Michael Myers movie that we all deserve. You might need to pay him a billion dollars to do it. I know. Because he does I, not dude, want to at all. <laughs> I know. I like and dude, he like he gets um like he still gets like IMDB credits for the characters and everything. Right. Yeah. But it's he's not like really like super involved with some of these remakes. Like I, I guarantee they probably call him or maybe have him on set or whatever or something like that, maybe to get his opinion. But he's not like super involved with it to the way that he was originally, and it shows. It really, really fucking shows. It's it's kind of like one of these things that only maybe it's like something that only he can do. But I, I I don't know, man. I just I feel that they they haven't really been the same ever since the the this franchise became a franchise yeah he he was one of the producers on the most recent one um and and like was essentially like a consultant for any any story related items that they were going to go through um but for the most part you're right like if he's given like story credits or production credits on the other on the other sequels it's just basically like yeah go ahead you can use it whatever just give me my money (laughs) right and dude I, I know that they're going to that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride have, have they, they have the reins at least for, I think, two more movies. But everybody that I know made a really big deal about this Halloween reboot and everything. And there was, it, it felt very similar to Halloween H2O, you know, mainly because it's return of Jamie Lee Curtis and mm-hmm. this kind of like off kilter, you know, 20 year sequel and stuff like that that came out. And I, I got a similar kind of hype from from this last one but when when i went into the theater to see this it just it felt like such an a modern on the nose rendition of a halloween movie like oh guess what there are podcasters that are going to interview michael myers oh and guess what those podcasters die at some point yeah and then that kind of shit cut that shit out of fucking movies period we don't need to know how you want to talk just in general chummy you want to talk about something that's going to date your movie horribly involve podcasters yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. I know what you're talking because, like, that is. Yeah, you're right. It is such a signature of the time that we're living in now. And when they put that into the movie, it's just I, it, there was something about it where I, I just wasn't really all for it. And then I'm not gonna lie, man. This like I almost threw up in my mouth in the theater. But there's this scene in the Halloween reboot where these two cops are kind of talking in a car, you know. And we're looking at 45 seconds of just little banter back and forth. And one of the cops leans over to the other cop and he says, like, "Did you know a bon me sandwich is blah 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 blah? Like this stupid little factoid of information that it was just so irrelevant. It sounded so corny, and it almost kind of sounded like." the writer learned something new that day and decided to incorporate it into a script. And I was, for some reason, this stupid dialogue exchange just bugs the ever loving shit out of me. And I, 
it just I just feel yeah. like I, I, it just, nobody's got it right, bro. It's, like no one's got these movies right that's, ever that's, since the first two. Whatever uh, that always stands out to me. That's Tarantino dialogue without the skill to deploy it, like Tarantino could deploy just, it. Yeah, exactly. And in a Tarantino movie, that one line is in a big sandwich that's a 10-minute long scene. That was just like, okay, we got these guys on camera for 45 seconds. What did they talk about before Michael Myers kills them? You know what I'm right. saying? And I like, I just cannot make this plea enough where I just don't feel that anybody gets it. I don't even know what it actually is to get. It's just some, It's kind of like obscenity. Like You just kind of know it when you see it, or pornography. You just kind of know when you mm-hmm. see it. But there's something about um, these movies that just – they haven't got it right, man. He needs he needs to come back just just for me, just to give everybody that one final parting gift, just to see how great this series can be and how entertaining, and just to, to make audiences fall in love with like the real like Michael Myers again. And I do want to ask you one quick question: Do you know who was the model for Michael Myers' mask, like the face that's that, that William Shatner? Yep. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. That's a. Yep. Just had to ask. Stupid general. Stupid piece of trivia. It's it's a William Shatner mask. They just painted white. Yes. Yes. You bet. Yep. Definitely. So yeah. So so those are uh, those are mine. What is um, I, what is your uh, real, real quickly? Movie? I love this idea of Maniac Cop being a John. I you're right. I cannot believe it's not a John Carpenter original. Anyway, um, the problem is like how in the world do you replace Robert Zadar, the guy with the giant face? Right, 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 right. How yeah. on earth do you do that? Yeah, I do. those are definitely like one of those kind of signature once in a lifetime kind of faces and everything yeah. like that. But yeah, I do. I I don't understand how Refn got this. Like, it is such a, it's so like out of left field even for him. Like, what I'm imagining is this: every episode is like two hours long. It's supposed to be a show that he's doing. It's like every episode is going to be like two hours long, and the entire time it's like three different camera angles. Like, I don't know what he's going to do, but it just doesn't seem like a Refn property. I would 100% agree with you with that. That doesn't feel quite. That doesn't feel like his brand at all. But yeah, who knows? Could be surprised. Yep, could be surprised. And like I, we call him um, and Danish me because there are photos that this guy literally looks like me, and it's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. No, I, actually, I, I got no. I'll, I'll do it later. I'll look him up later. Now that I'm really thinking about it, I don't. I don't like recall what he looks like off the top of my head. Yeah, there's this photo. Like he's like he's giving like I think the peace sign or something like that. He's got to be at like an award show, and he's got both of his arms up. And I'm like, yeah, that's Danish me all the way. <laughs> God, that's funny. All right, uh, no, I like it. I dig it. Um, so, Chema, I went with a an early '90s book that um, I feel like because originally I I couldn't remember the name of this book um, that William Gibson originally wrote. Uh, he's the one who coined the phrase cyberspace um, in the 1980s. Okay. Um, uh, in his in his book, I think I think it was in a short story first, but it was the book I was looking for originally was Neuromancer. I couldn't remember the name of it. Um, it's like an, it's essentially William Gibson essentially created the cyberpunk genre, uh, in books. Okay. And obviously then from in, in movies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, stuff like, stuff like the matrix, Johnny Demonic, those kind of things are all borrowing very, very heavily from Neuromancer. Um, that was like my first kind of instinct was Neuromancer, but it, that is actually being made into a movie, I think next year. Um, and since you kind of you were kind of confused by the Nicholas Wending Refn uh, Maniac Cop property. I am confused by Tim Miller handling a seminal work of cyberpunk sci-fi. Okay, who is Tim Miller? Deadpool. Oh, really? Yeah. Whoa, okay. Uh, 
Yeah, so it's a very serious just... book. It's a very serious series of books. I don't get it. Yeah, that um wow, I just had like two trains collide in my head right there and that um I'm starting to question that like big time because in my mind the first thing that I'm seeing is kind of like the stupid tacky Deadpool humor and it looks completely out of place in like the cyberpunk world. But in that's a, the first in thing a very that serious in my mind. cyberpunk world where people are getting manipulated and killed in cyberspace and in, in real life. Yeah, and then I, yeah, the, like the first thing in my mind is just like a guy making a fast food joke or something like that, like in this crazy side. It's just I'm not. Yeah. There are some things here that are just not looking right to me. Is what I'm trying yeah. to say. So that was that was like my initial kind of thought, and you know, because it now I can't, and, and because I couldn't get Tim Miller. I mean, again, maybe we, maybe we'll be surprised, pleasantly surprised. Who knows? Um, but so since, since that, like, I couldn't get that out of my head. I was like, okay, I know there's another book. It's from the early '90s. I couldn't remember the name. I like after doing a shitload of digging. I, I I remember it had a weird name, and it's it's based off the name of a drug that's presented in this book. It's called Snow Crash. Um, I'm I'm going to give you this. It's by Neil Stevenson it's from like '92 or '91. I'm going to give you like the background sort of synopsis for for Snow Crash, and okay. this feels like, uh, well, uh, tell me what like it feels like a lot of John Carpenter movies plus another plus another property rolled into one. I want you to, yeah, I'll give you the quick synopsis. Well, it's a little bit long, but I'll get through it quickly. Um, story opens in 21st century Los Angeles, um, an unspecified number of years after a worldwide collapse, uh, Los Angeles is no longer part of the United States. The U S federal government has ceded most of its power and territory to private organizations and entrepreneurs, uh, franchising individual sovereignty and private vehicles reign supreme mercenary armies compete for national defense contracts while private security guards preserve, preserve peace and sovereign gated housing developments that are called burb claves that are actually like independent, independent, like sovereign territories. Um, highway companies compete to attract drivers to their roads. Um, and all mail delivery is hired by courier. The, the remnants of the government, uh, the government authority are only like an isolated compounds uh, and basically they're irrelevant. Um, much of the world is run by big business. There's an entire, uh, there's a company called Mr. Lee's that runs greater Hong Kong. Um, the American mafia runs most of the companies and states on the East coast. And, uh, the entire world kind of runs under what it's, this is, by the way, this is what the libertarians want. Uh, anarcho, anarcho, anarcho capitalism. Um, it's like a right wing version of libertarianism, libertarianism where, uh, the free market, um, basically is supposed to correct all ills. Uh, but this is actually what would really happen. Uh, hyperinflation uh, has reduced the value of dollars that there are trillion dollar bills called Ed Meeses uh, and named after Edward Meese or Edwin Meese, who was uh, uh, served in the Republican, Republican Party under Reagan. And the smallest note or the smallest, most valuable note is called the Gipper, obviously named after Ronald Reagan. Uh, it's a quadrillion dollar bill. Um, so the hyperinflation is has destroyed our currency um, most of the most of the rich places like Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong has their own currency called Kong Bucks in Mr. Lee's case. Um, and the place where people get to escape this fucking hellscape is called the metaverse. Uh, where it's a successor to the internet where everyone can kind of plug in uh, and, you know, via avatars can kind of move about the world and do things that they want. But even in the metaverse, you're kind of separated by class. Okay. All right. So that movie or that book kind of sounds like you're borrowing Blade Runner. It sounds like there's um, some Ready Player One in there. And oh, uh, don't ever mention Ready Player One. 
Okay. Okay. Never mind. It's not ever mentioned Ready Player One, but okay. Last time I'm ever going to do it on the uh, on the podcast for sure. Um, and there's God, there's another one in there movie wise that it was on the tip of my tongue like two seconds ago, and it's totally like escaping me right now. Like a equilibrium, it kind of like has like a combination of okay. all three of those in my mind. Well, I was hoping you'd give me some Carpenter esque ones. Um, oh, some Carpenter. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like this feels yeah, okay. like so in this one there'd be Escape from New York. It feels like Escape like, from New York. They live, and then I would as like an outsider source, uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Robot. Okay. Ooh. Very good. Okay. Yeah. I'm, we're like two seasons into that show. I yeah. gotta, I gotta wrap up with it. Really good stuff. Uh, there's, there's a whole, like, there's a whole like side story in this book about, uh, cryptocurrency, untaxable, you know, untaxable, um, untaxable, uh, internet currencies and internet, uh, internet exchanges and things like that. That's like part of what, what led the worldwide collapse. And like, everyone yes. is like some, any, everyone worth their while is like some kind of hacker. Um, which in, in like, in like 80s and 90s sci-fi books everyone was a hack like literally everyone was a hacker but um like i really see this as being sort of you know since carpenter has dabbled in tv on and off uh you know for you know, 45 plus years um i kind of see this as like a tv show maybe like a limited series or like even an anthology series um you know about like the collapse of society and the text text recurring role in that collapse and it, there is a main there's a whole different storyline that involves it, it obviously it takes place in that background, but I almost kind of see it like you could take that background of what the world has become, and if you want to touch on some of the characters that are in the main storyline for from Snow Crash, go for it. But I almost feel like you could use Carpenter's sensibilities to do what Damon Lindelof did with Watchmen. You just expand and you touch on certain things from that world, but build your own story within that world. Okay, yeah, dude, like. I could definitely see where you're going with this here. And like, let's just say, for example, like um, maybe like the most interesting part of the the book or the story might be one specific part of it. And he could live in that element of, of the book and everything. And the way that just from the description that you read, it sounds like there is a, overabundance of really cool stuff and really cool interesting kind of things with the way that this world is and what this societal and economic and everything collapse has taken place that uh there's something about that that does feel ripe for like the carpenter treatment you know and you're right you we may never even find out like the rest of the world in detail but we'll probably at the way least get like that you know kind of like scrolling thing at the beginning that's kind of like a paragraph that Mm -hmm. describes what happened and then you just basically dive into this more focused story in this really crazy as shit world. Right. Like if like, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, you could do the main storyline. It's a little bit, it's a little bit confusing, but I mean, you could do an entire, you could do an entire story that, that takes place in Mr. Lee's greater Hong Kong, if you wanted to. And like what the, the goings on there. Um, cause it does, it does in part, part of the main story does touch in, uh, does reach greater Hong Kong. Um, but you know, you there's, it's just, this writer, this Neil Stevenson created it's This book's won a ton of awards. Um, he created like a very rich environment. And I think this is what the best book writers do in general. They created a rich environment. And there's multiple books sprung out of this one book because there's just mm-hmm. that many stories to tell. Cause he did a really good job of laying the foundation of what the world is like. Has any of his stuff been turned into movies that, that we, you and I might've seen Neil Stevenson. Let me um, do a quick check here. Um, I, something something i feel like something yeah let me um it's just for some reason this this name does sound very familiar to me and the way that you've described that book there's no way that this guy's work has not gotten the hollywood treatment over time 
Um, let's see here. I am... I am not finding anything that he's had turned into anything else. Wow. Interesting. He might be the only writer in the world like who hasn't had anything. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, in his, I'm on his Wikipedia right now. There is no... Um, yeah, there's there's no, like... Um, there's no section that has him, like... Oh, and, you know, in other, you know, in other, or adaptations, I should say. There's nothing like that. Okay, well, now we know who's going to be the next hot author that, like, it'll be one of these things where um somebody maybe buys the rights to Snow Crasher, and then they just start buying up all his stuff. It'll be like the Jillian Flynn of the, uh, you know, like, um like the next Jillian Flynn type character. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that actually, as I'm just looking through that, that really surprises me because it... It, it is very the 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 general synopsis of Snow Crash is very relevant to today. Like it's mm-hmm. it, it it's one of those books that's about twenty years ahead of its time. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna have to uh, look into that because I'm gonna need more stuff to read. I'm almost running out of a uh, I'm almost running out of books to read here in this quarantine time period. So that does sound something that's like right up my alley. Yeah, there you go, there you go. So Snow Crash and what were uh, all? Th- give me all three of your properties. Again, just throw them out. Okay, so mine was um, a psychological horror, just an in general yep. psychological horror. Maniac Cop was my um, take some take it from somebody, give it to John Carpenter, mm-hmm. and the personal the Adam holds true to his heart is the Halloween franchise. There you go. I think uh, yeah, I, I think I honestly, boy, I I'm really ex- I mean, a, I'm just excited to see that Maniac Cop is like getting appreciated beyond exactly what it was <laughs> that like <laughs> right. someone is taking it on, but. Man, that's that's strange. Nicholas Winding Refn is very strange choice. Anyway, yeah, I, he's a very strange guy. <laughs> yes, he is. All right, uh, let's just real quickly getting get into here. We we kind of mentioned it a couple times now, but uh, John Carpenter is a prolific musician. Um, as a matter of fact, if you go to John Carpenter's website, the official John Carpenter dot com, it hasn't been updated in a while. Um, but <clears throat> there's almost nothing about his movies on here. But you could book tickets for his tours. Um, there's a there's a whole thing about. Uh, I guess he did the or most of the, uh, the most of the recent Halloween uh, soundtrack. Um, I'm sure he did a lot of the scoring on the on the composing and scoring on the movie. Um, he's even more recently has made music videos for some of his old stuff. Um, like there's no a video shit. he's done a video for Christine recently. Um, I know he's done a video for for something. Oh gosh, for something else here. Something uh, one of his original songs from. Escape from New York. He's done a video for recently. Um, it's just, you know, when you talk about like, when you talk about like, you know, talk about directors and putting their fingerprints on everything, you're right. I can't think of another director that puts his fingerprints so deeply on everything that he's doing the score and he's doing the composing too. Yeah, nobody on that level, man. Like, like I said earlier, like even like the even like the greats, like the heavy hitters and stuff. Like Scorsese's not doing that kind of stuff. Like, it's just something that is not really a characteristic of of like the, the people that we think are like these film gods, you know what I'm saying? Mm. Like Spielberg, it's no way in hell Spielberg's doing any of no. that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? No. Or even like, even like Stanley Kubrick for that matter, he wasn't writing the music for the movies. I mean, he was doing like a lot of script stuff and producing, but still not even with the score. And that's what makes, that is one of the things that I think really makes John Carpenter so unique. And it's, it is just this like simple one sentence factoid of like, yeah, he scored all his own stuff. But I, I, number one, I don't think people real, real, really realize how difficult it oh, is yeah. to score a movie. Yeah. But um, also just to take on that responsibility 
on top of everything else. I mean, like even just to put it like this, like, can you imagine like what this guy's workday must have been like? Oh my god! You're you're all wrapped up shooting. You do like 14 hours of editing, and then you just like what, like sit in the room and try to figure out the right notes to play at the right time. Mm-hmm. That's grueling, dude. That is like some really taxing work, and. I don't know, man. Like there are people that like you might see or you might view as somebody who goes all in on their projects, but it's like no one's really going all in on the level that Carpenter did. No, and and it's it's going all in and creating iconic, iconic movie music. Absolutely, create. I mean, the Halloween theme is his. That's yeah. That is unforgettable, undeniable. Like it, 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 that's that. Even if the movies don't last another fifty years, that song. Is that theme is going to last forever, forever? They they play it during third down of the Browns game. Yep. That's how like that's how significant that piece of music is. And really quick, dude, do you think that he gets a cut of that money? Do you think like the NFL just like cut him like a check, like hey, we're going to use this in games for like now till the end of time? That's a good question. It's probably not. Yeah, it's probably like a bulk deal. Like here's a check for five hundred thousand dollars, so we can just move use use your you know this particular theme here. Because right. we're not going to pay you each individual licensing usage uh, that, unless you want to get checks for like 40 cents for the rest of your life. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because like I, I know that for a fact, like there had to be some kind of licensing. I mean, you oh, could sure. hear that music even playing over the television sometimes. So he had to have gotten a cut from them oh, so, for sure. or something, something from the NFL. And, and especially since he is, well, <sighs> Halloween belongs to Universal, right? Is, or who who originally was like okay. on the production? Because he, that's like his later movies in the late '80s. Those are all independent in his movies. Um, okay. So whoever the studio is might actually own the song. That's right. I do think I believe Universal might be the umbrella, like the the, the big body. That, yeah. Like you know the the money or the whatever the 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 thing is owned. The song is owned by. Right. But. There's got to be something though that trickles down. To oh, I'm him, sure it does. Whether, but like, but but yeah, I mean, I and I keep forgetting about like how. I mean, dude, if you wanted to, you could buy the rights to that song if you had enough money and makes stuff. No you know? Which so, makes I mean, no sense. But whatever. <laughs> right, right. But um, but yeah, like I, I keep forgetting that all the the way that all that shit works and stuff, and like the um, where the money goes, who owns all that stuff. I mean, it's probably it's some of that knowledge is just like completely above my pay yeah. grade as to how that whole thing works. I, but it, it's, it's really fucking confusing and that's clearly on purpose um right i don't want to say it's like because the lawyers can make money necessarily mm-hmm. but it does keep the lawyers employed all of these yeah. vastly inter intertangled and confusing laws on, on copywriting and trademarking everything else it's bizarre yeah it's it's one of those things that you could say it it's basically so they can have a so they can have a job and yeah. keep uh, <laughs> keep keep at it and stuff yeah. like that and, and dude like you're right i mean that that piece of music is so iconic when it comes to music from film. I mean, even when I were to like rant off, like just the the top five, like, you know, pieces of music from movies that comes into my mind every time. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're looking at jaws, you're looking at Mm -hmm. uh, the star Wars intro, the Imperial March, the Halloween theme. And just to even be in the same like top 10 list as those pieces of of music is, I mean, that, that is just something right there. I mean, like even like dudes like Hans Zimmer and everything, Hans Zimmer's this fucking like world renowned, like composer and stuff like that. He's probably composing music for the next biggest movie uh, right now. But Hans Zimmer does not have 
the Halloween theme. You know, yep. he doesn't have this one signature like piece of music and stuff like that. And it's not a knock on his career. It's just something that that the guy doesn't have amongst everything else he's got. <laughs> no, like uh, it, it's it was really funny because um, for the thing, he didn't score or compose anything in the thing. That was um, Ennio Marconi. And yep. it's, it's one of the he actually just died this year. Maybe maybe, you know, Hans Zimmer, John Williams up there. And then like Ennio Marconi is like the next name. In terms of right. your like your movie, you know the the composers in movies, it, it's he's right there, and it's just like yeah, but John Carpenter did the Halloween theme, right? <laughs> and you didn't, is it? Yeah, it's so nuts, dude. Like when you could like all the, the, those names and stuff like that. That John Carpenter is amongst like John Williams and all that stuff mm-hmm. with like musical composers. And, and that right there, like, I mean, when I when I do do that third spin episode, I'm going to get into like some just some stuff and everything like that I found and, and all that with uh, with the music. But I mean, it just it's a testament to the greatness of John Carpenter. It's a it's, it's a reason as to why we're doing this episode, mm-hmm. why we've devoted like a whole month to this guy. It's just there are these things that like other people do not do, you yeah. know, and I guarantee that if he if. If uh, Ennio was not on the table to score the thing, he probably would have oh, done sure. that too. For sure. A um, little quick trivia here. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of like the you know the, the exact parallels between um, the thing and the Hateful Eight, correct? Oh, I'm I'm aware. Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, even Ennio Morricone scored uh, the Hateful Eight and yep. used pieces used pieces of music that weren't used for the thing for that movie. Yes, there are. Um, unf- yes, you're right. I read that um, that there are these unfinished kind of pieces that he reworked for the Hateful Eight, and there are two specific pieces of music. And I I do not know what these little excerpts are called, even though like on the Hateful Eight vinyl that I have, it does you know specifically list that mm-hmm. piece of music. It's just escaping me right now. But all right, sorry about that. It's some technical difficulties. Chubb and I were just talking about. Uh... Talking about the, the similarities between the thing and the hateful eight, in particular the music. So sorry if this seems a little bit stilted, um, but Chama, go go ahead and hop back on that thought. Yeah, like you were saying before, there's like yes, you're right. There's definitely some unfinished uh, thing music that got redone for the hateful eight. There are these sections of the movie where, like I'm telling you, the music it's used in. It's not only does it sound alike. But it's used in just like these scenes of like, you know, the winter time outside mm-hmm. and like what happens outside the camp and um, in the thing where it's kind of like the slow haunting piano. And in the thing, you could clearly tell that something was started and that it was finished in, in the Hateful Eight. And like I like I said before, like I I love the Hateful Eight score. I do think that the Hateful Eight is basically a Western version of the thing. And um, I, like I said uh, before, the technical difficulties that if NEO is not on the table, I will guarantee you that John Carpenter would have scored that movie too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, 100% agree. And I, and I do love that this. Uh, my my other favorite bit of uh, info for you know trivia from the Hateful Eight is that's the only movie that he showed to the cast of the Hateful Eight was the thing. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, oh my god, man, they. Tarantino actually uses some of the same camera angles and yep. setups too to, mm-hmm. to kind of recreate that and stuff. And I like I I've seen the Hateful Eight into the 30s now. I've seen that movie so many goddamn times. I absolutely love it. I think it's Tarantino's masterpiece. And if there's any movie to model your masterpiece off of, the thing is a damn good selection. Absolutely, I completely agree. He even borrowed <laughs> Kurt Russell for it. So yeah, dude, there were <laughs> okay. So I'm glad you mentioned that because there are scenes where like Kurt Russell and especially the whole thing where he's going around like with the people's blood and all that stuff. It is like mm-hmm. watching John Ruth with the taking the people's guns and everything. Yep. I mean, I, I even believe that there. 
there are certain dialogue lines that are the same. And there are times where you're just, it's, it's kind of cool to see like young Kurt Russell and old Kurt Russell. And in many ways, he's still the same Kurt Russell. I know it's, it's, it's nuts. It's nuts. Um, but let's, let's get on here real quickly. Um, just talk quickly about his early films. And these are early films. Uh, Captain Voyeurs from 1969. Um, it's a, it's a student film from his time. I, I don't remember if he was at USC at this time, but I'm sure he was. Um, I, it feels pretty. I feel pretty positive that he was because it's in like USC's uh, film archives at this point. Um, but Captain Voyeur, 1969, really important because this set the seeds. These are the raw seeds for Michael Myers, the, for the Michael Myers character. Oh, interesting. Okay, uh, a masked man that is just following a coworker around her around her neighborhood and her home. That is basically the uh, Halloween movie. Add a knife and some bodies. Yeah, that's the Halloween one and two right there. Ba- basically, <laughs> no um, sh- yeah, yeah oh, like, it's, it's like an eight-minute had- movie. Good, like I like I told you, I think I told you off air. Like, good luck finding it um, mm-hmm. anywhere. Like, you literally have to go to California to go see it. So. Yeah, and believe even when you get to California, it's going to be a nightmare. Like, I guarantee that, like, I couldn't just go to USC and be like, hey, my name's Adam. I'd like to watch Captain Voyeur. Can one of you guys sit in a room with me for eight minutes? Like, that's not that's not right. happening. Right. You, you probably you and, probably have to fill out forms and shit to take it to and you have to sit there and oh, watch it under supervision from other people. Yeah. And dude, I just thought about like what even the condition of the actual film must be like. I mean, it's got to be handled by like a specialist oh, yeah. and yeah. stuff like they're not going to say, hey, Adam, load this into our projector. Here's a quick video on. <laughs> how to do it you know right, exactly. <laughs> exactly but yeah this, the, that that's from 1969 early film sets this it, again the raw seeds for um what would become uh what will become michael myers and you know when you describe it the way i described it is it's what halloween is basically um but a little bit more his first real movie uh dark star comes in 1974 um about a crew they're on i believe they're like a 20 years into this long trip they're blowing up planets that might become uh, it's like, I want to say it's like 150, 160 years in the future, uh, like from now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're blowing up planets that might be unstable and could, and could, uh, disrupt further, uh, colonization, uh, efforts for humanity. And it's definitely a comedy. Um, like the bombs have personalities and they talk to everyone. Um, yeah. there's, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of bizarre things. This is, it's one of those movies I do kind of want to see it just to sort of soak up like the early, early stuff of what Carpenter was thinking about. Um, but this is, this does give birth to a pretty, a pretty famous writer. Um, Dan O'Bannon. Are you familiar with Dan O'Bannon at all? I totally am. I'm drawing a blank on his work right now, but I know that name. Dan, Dan O'Bannon was the main character in this movie. I can't remember uh, his character's name. Um, and he actually did. And in, in very Carpenter esque fashion, he like John Carpenter. He had he did like he acted, wrote, edited. He also did like prop work, special effects work, um, the same way Carpenter did like everything else that, that he didn't do basically. Um, mm-hmm. But Dan O'Bannon, uh, there is there's a creature that he made for this movie, and he wrote a script for it called Star Beast, and it got the attention of Ridley Scott and became Alien. That's where I know it from. And he okay. created, what? he helped to create the with the the look of the alien. Obviously, that's mostly goes towards H.R. Giger, but um, created the look of the alien. And then Dan O'Bannon went on to write uh, Aliens, Total Recall, Screamers. Um, he did a lot of a lot of adaptations of Philip K. Dick stuff. Um, he wrote a ton of stuff. Wrote a ton of stuff in Hollywood. 
Okay, that's why the Total Recall. That's yeah. sounding definitely familiar. Wow, no shit. It's from the first John Carpenter movie, man. I'm telling yep. you, that's that is. It's really cool, like to see like where a lot of these like people came from and everything like that, you know. And the the one um the one stupid thing I know about Dark Star is that uh, I guess like you were right about the bombs kind of communicating with each other. They were typing. They made a message, I think, to like one of the producers or something of the movie. It was like a "fuck you, Jerry" kind of message that yeah, one yeah. of the, the bomb says to another one and everything. Mm-hmm. And like number one, like with the whole idea of just going around and destroying potential planets. Once again, that is a total John Carpenter idea. Like I'm not thinking of that kind of stuff. And then to just put this like little, like, you know, kind of comic relief, like where it's a shot at the director. Like I, I absolutely love that too, man. It's like, God damn, Daniel fucking Bannon. Like that's a, uh, yeah, I'm going to be, uh, I'll be thinking about that one for a while. Just amazing to see like where some of these people come uh, from. There's, and, and with John Carpenter, there's a lot of people like that, um, that, that pop out like John, uh, James Cameron worked on uh, some of the effects for uh, Escape from New York. Yes, that is true. That I did know that. Yeah. Yes, you bet. And if I'm not mistaken, I think like Frank Darabont might have did a version of one of the scripts for a movie that he wrote or stepped I, in on or something. Yeah, I believe you're correct on that too. I think it was I think it was Prince of Darkness. I think Fra- Frank Darabont came in on Prince of Darkness, but then at the end, John Carpenter wrote it under that Martin Quartermass or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think so. Yeah, you're right. all the. I, there's probably so many goddamn people like production wise and everything that have crossed the the Carpenter path over time where. I wouldn't even be surprised if like I don't somebody like uh, even somebody like Arnold at one point in time had a role in the John Carpenter movie <laughs> right. building a set or something like right. that. I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah, but those those are his I, I, I those are his early works. Um, and I like as we get into this, I'll explain how I kind of set this up. But those are his early works. Really, those are that, that's like proto John Carpenter. We're 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 not there yet with what uh, John Carpenter would become, basically. Um, but these are, so I, I separated them to his early films, his prime films. These are like the, the movies that he was pumping out, uh, throughout the, uh, the late seventies and the eighties. Um, his last films, the, the movies that he made in the late nineties and, uh, in, actually into the two thousands. And then, uh, I, I kept the, the Pantheon works, the things that are, con- the movies, the movies that are considered his like very best. I saved those for last. Cause I think those are worth their own discussion. Um, you know, apart from everything else. Um, I hope that made sense to you, by the way. <laughs> that made all the sense okay. in the world to me, dude. Yeah. And I I, I, I was thinking about like how you were going to do this. And that is by far and away. You have to do it that way, dude. We have to put yeah. all those movies aside from the other stuff. Yeah. Because, and here we'll get into it right now. We're talking about his prime films. Um, you're talking about The Fog, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and really probably his last prime film, In the Mouth of Madness. And these all span from 1980 through 1994, I believe. And, you know, it, like, sticking, like, stuck in there is, <clears throat> excuse me, stuck in this in this particular time period is Escape from New York, The Thing and They Live. And those are worthy of being discussed outside of these ones, basically. Definitely. Yeah. So, uh, so of these movies, again, The Fog, Christine, Starman, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and In the Mouth of Madness... Is there anything about this period of his work that really stands out to you? 
Okay, I, I actually like took these and I kind of labeled them as eras. Okay. And these these films I called the accessible era. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. I called them the accessible era, this basically means that these works are the ones that are definitely more accessible to a mainstream audience than yes. than the movies like Escape from New York. Even they, they Live is just not a mainstream no. movie kind no. of deal. And um, if we take a look at some of these like individually, like take Christine, for example. Now, in the 70s and 80s, Stephen King was on fire. Like yeah. this guy was a this guy was like a mega like basically like one of the first like mega authors like these Daniel Steele types. You know what I'm saying? That's just like book after book mm-hmm. after book. That's mm-hmm. a hit after hit after hit. And he and some people and I'm I'm one of them that some people might say that the 80s and the 70s was Stephen King's heyday. And I will I will definitely oh, back sure. up that statement. <laughs> he has not done anything in recent times that compares to um what he had done at this period of time so like what i'm kind of imagining is like you know okay hey we got the rights to this book and there was a uh, carrie had come out a couple of years before that and even like dude in 83 alone there were three stephen king movies that got released mm-hmm. between um creep show and um uh, creep show is creep show christine and one other one that um is escaping me right now but so all this stuff was really hot so what i'm seeing is like a studio um, you know, fighting in a bid to get Christine or get the rights to Christine. And they're like, okay, now that we have this awesome thing, like who's the director that we can hire on and basically make a movie that's going to make us a shit ton of money and stuff like that. And even like um, Christine just like out of the plot and everything I, I do believe is like very John Carpenter, like um, even though it's a Stephen King book, mm-hmm. but knowing that they were translating a Stephen King book into a movie just screams like it basically screams money play to me and money plays do mean accessibility because they have to be, you have to cast like the widest net as possible. So, um, so that's with Christine, like with, um, with big trouble in little China, it was like not so much like a horror movie and everything like that. And you had like the young Kim Cattrall, you had Kurt Russell, like, in this like mm-hmm. blossoming time period of his and stuff. So once again, like a movie that is definitely more accessible to a mass audience. And then um, even with um, the memoirs of the invisible man, this is when Carpenter had some like legit star power in this movie. Yep. Like, and I'm not saying that Kurt Russell is not like a legit star power, but this was the, at least in my opinion, this seems to be the first movie where he not only had like established actors, like people that have worked like for a long time, but people that right. were well known that have worked for a right. long time. Chevy like, Chase Ch- and Daryl Hannah in the early nineties were about as big as it got. Yeah, exactly. So like, and when you have people that are like that and you're not casting your group of regulars or like Donald Pleasance as the, you know, the scary psychiatrist, the scary doctor psychiatrist, you know, with the demons and everything, it just means more accessibility. So um, that's definitely the one thing that um, stands out about it uh, to me. And even even just like one um, last thing here, um, the fog, which which I did love. The fog. The fog is is more of like a PG thirteen horror movie. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more like stripped down from the from Halloween, especially like with some of the graphic content. Mm-hmm. And believe me, like people get stabbed and people die or whatever. But it just had more of a feeling of like a non rated R and thus more accessible, scary movie than some of his other stuff. Right, right, exactly. Um, and, you know, I, I agree with all that. I think that's a really perfect way to put it. These are, these are like A1 studio movies um, that, you know, in the, in the way that they live is not, that Escape from New York is not. Um, they're just, they're very different. And I think accessibility is the right way to put it. And when you, 
when you, as you go through these movies, this is really what I hit on. This is extremely eclectic. Um, you have original works uh, in terms of The Fog, Big Trouble in Little China, Starman. Those are all originals. And p- take those three together, they're nothing alike um, at all. Like You have this kind mm-hmm. of tender romance story in Starman, you know, uh, about an alien who comes to Earth and tries to learn, you know, who actually answers Earth's signal uh, from the Voyager uh, from the Voyager space probe um, and comes to Earth and, you know, falls in love with a human woman. Um, Big Trouble in Little China is this is this Asian centric uh, adventure with um, that that you know to his credit that puts the Asian actors first. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know it's not it's not whitewashed. Yep. Um, and the fog, you're you're kind of more mainstream PG thirteen horror as you put it. Um, and then he even does adaptations as you mentioned. Uh, Christine, obviously the the most um, the most obvious one, the, the Stephen King ad- adaptation. Memoirs of Invisible Man is an adaptation of, of of a book, and also his kind of own personal take on the various Invisible Man stories that have been around in Hollywood for years. Um, but it's an adaptation, and then you even have homage in the Mouth of Madness is his homage to one of his favorites, H.P. Lovecraft. So mm-hmm. you have, and so you have this very eclectic mix of doing stuff that he wrote, doing stuff that other people wrote, and doing stuff that is a lot like what other people wrote or have done previously. Um, there, you will not see Steven Spielberg do this kind of stuff in a 15-year period. This much different stuff in a 15-year period. Oh, absolutely not. Like, that guy is just, like, he knows his brand, and mm-hmm. that's what he's sticking to. Like, Spielberg, especially in the last, like, 15 years or so, he's not doing another Catch Me If You Can. Like, no. those, those days are gone. Yep. You know, he's now the spectacle. He's now... Um, a movie I said I was never going to mention ever again. Like he's, Ready Player that, One, yeah. <laughs> like, like, like the, that is what the Steven Spielberg brand has become. And when you're in the trailer announcing yourself as from the mind of visionary filmmaker Steven Spielberg, yeah, like th- that's what the audience like expects. Like it's the same thing for James Cameron. And then like Cameron, I don't really know if there's. I don't even think that there's anything really wrong with this. It's just kind of how people like just the natural course of events. It seems like, mm-hmm. but Cameron's life right now for the rest of his life will probably be avatar and things that are just as spectacular on screen. Like yep. he is not going to do like, there's going to be no more true lies. Like even stuff like that. True lies. is yeah. just like, that's it's like fuck, what true lies. Come on. We did that in 95. Like he's not doing stuff like that. Like camera's going to be in CGI worlds, CGI universes, like all, all that kind of stuff. Like those are their brands. They're not going to make an attempt to do this level of like eclecticism and like the variety as Carpenter did during this time period. Yeah, exactly. And you know, like could you basically, could you imagine Steven Spielberg doing some bizarre, like black comedy in the, you know, in between, in between his like next, whatever his next sequel or whatever his next big spectacle is like, that's essentially what it would be like if he did some black comedy and then he did some like romance in between. Right. Exactly. And, and that's not happening no. right now. Like that may have happened earlier in his career, but that's definitely not happening now. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, how about, uh, how about any commonalities between all these movies? Okay. So like, it kind of goes back to a little bit of what I was saying with the accessibleness is that there was definitely like, I feel some of the more in your face horror was definitely toned down. So this is more like a, a kind of like relaxed time period. And the, the commonality between all these movies is that it is definitely just, 
it is just not as raw. It's a little bit more polished mm-hmm. of a product when it was all said and done. And um, even like even the fog, which is the fog might end up being like the rawest out of all of them. But the fog is still polished to like a certain uh, to like a, to a certain like um, sure. level. The, the fog yeah. is still very, very polished and and very not raw in your face in the same sense as Assault on Precinct, Precinct 13, where within the first five minutes you have a couple people blown away and then there's a whole bunch of dudes cutting the all right sorry a few more technical difficulties uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna give skype a call later tonight and yell at them a lot um but Chema, you're you're comparing you're talking about how the, the fog is more polished than precinct th- precinct 13 and you're leading in with an example there oh. about uh the first few minutes of precinct 13 yeah. okay so yeah the, the fog is definitely definitely more polished and way more um it's in the first like, Five to ten minutes of assault on PC 13. In the first like two minutes, some dude gets blown away. And it might even happen with it. It might even be the opening shot of the movie. It's like a door opening, somebody comes out of stars and gets blown away. And then right after that, there are these guys cutting their arms open and dripping blood into this bowl. And that is just not happening in, in this time period with Carpenter and stuff like that. That raw, that certain like raw quality about his work was, you know, kind of put on hold and traded for a more um, accessible, more like, um, you know, toned down movie when it comes to like, uh, the violence and gore and all that stuff. And I'm not saying that there wasn't like violence or people didn't die in any of these movies during this time period, but it was just a little bit different and a little less in your face than it was in some of the earlier Carpenter. Movies. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like just thinking about like big trouble in little China, there's like some deaths. There's like a lot of like implied deaths where people get mm-hmm. like kicked or punched and like they, you know, we don't see them again. Um, right. You know, in the end, uh, when Lopan dies, it's very comedic how he dies. Like it, it's it's so over the top. It, you know, it's not it's violent, but it's like it's so over the top. It's absurd. Um, just right. it's it's on Big Trouble Little China is on a different planet than Assault on Precinct Thirteen or Escape from New York. <laughs> right. And dude, yesterday was the the first time I had watched Assault on Precinct Thirteen. I think in my life. I mean, I can't pinpoint if I'd seen that movie before. Mm-hmm. And for like what is it like an hour and 20 minutes or so? I mean that you are in it from the moment yep. that it begins. And like that kind of had a, um, almost like a raid kind of feel to it. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Oh, like yes. you're, you're there, you're in this thing, you're seeing like the inner workings of all this. I, I was, it was fucking awesome. Dude. A, like oh, I, it's a fanta- I can't wait to talk about it. It's a fantastic fucking movie. Um, yeah. So no, so I'm with you on that. Um, I think, uh, I, I went with, I found some like more story stuff that just kind of pops up. Um, there is a lot of, man on the run in these movies um in particular from the government obviously Starman, memoirs of an invisible man and even to a degree in the mouth of madness uh it's, it's a there's a man on the run um there's also a lot of this like sort of clueless guy or clueless person entering when we talked about like the world beneath like the you know the just beneath the surface mm-hmm. the person who enters it is very clueless to what's going on so in big trouble in little china kurt russell's jack burton has no idea that all of this is happening in Chinatown, San Francisco. In right. Memoirs of an Invisible Man, Chevy Chase's character, I can't remember his name, Nick Holloway, I think. Nick Holloway has no idea that, like, what he's gotten into. Like, that, that this pro- government program exists and that he's, like, the... Uh, un- he's part of this unfortunate accident, basically. Um, right. uh, in the Mouth of Madness, Sam Neill has no idea that he's walking into uh, what should be otherwise an otherwise fictional town and then you can even extend that to Starman. This alien has no idea what he's getting into on Earth. 
Um, so there's all this, like, sort of our protagonist is very clueless as to what's going on around him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Like the on the run, the the, the adjacent fish out of water type yeah. situation, the eye opening to yep. um, new things. Yeah, of course. Yep, absolutely. I just something that kind of permeates this period. And really, I mean, I, I, I don't know. There's probably you could probably pick that up in, in a lot of the movies to some degree. But I just think it's very, very present uh, in this particular time period. Yeah, there's not it's not as um, in the foreground as it is with some of his later with some of his other works. And I'm, I'm trying to think maybe with they live, they live. Yeah, yeah I, I can't think of anything else that comes close to the, the guy being on the run, kind of the eye opening thing. I, I just can't think of it from yeah. um, his filmography. Yeah. Um, so how about from this time period, your, your favorite from this time period? <laughs> Okay, I'm going with the fog on this one, and after rewatching it, um, I, like I did uh, last week, it just kind of brought back a lot of memories as to how much I enjoyed this movie when I first got into John Carpenter movies in like the mid '90s and stuff. And um, I happened to really just love, and this is just the writer and me talking, but the the screenplay it's like so textbook that it's like almost predictable, and like I didn't even care. And there are just some times where. I really appreciate like, um, you know, crazy structure and stuff like that when it comes to writing and believe me like that. Um, I'm thinking about ending things movie on Netflix. Like there's a lot of really great, cool things with structure that just really just like drew me to that movie. But there are sometimes dude, where if you can give me screenwriting one Oh one, but it's executed perfectly, it works mm-hmm. so well sometimes. And like with the fog specifically, like the way that we were, constantly getting this exposition from the uh priest's um great great grandfather's journal and stuff like that yeah. and it almost seemed like every act of the movie there was another page that had been turned in that book and there was some big reveal and they carried this all the way to the way end when they were taking out the big gold cross and stuff like that you know it was like you, you almost really didn't know what the hell the the ghost pirates were there for and the way that they built up everything and the way that they um release the exposition like i i just happened to have loved it i thought it was just basically if you were like um an up-and-coming or just starting out uh, screenwriter and you're trying to like learn things about how to write a textbook screenplay that is that you couldn't get a more like clear yeah. example of how to write a textbook or screenplay than the fog and yeah. then the other thing um having jamie lee and janet lee on the same screen was pretty cool you know just to oh, have those sure. two t- yep. together in a movie and uh, the other thing too man which i had said earlier like i cannot get i still like cannot get over how hot i thought nancy loomis was as a kid and stuff man like because <laughs> she's in the in the fog and everything yeah yeah and that was like i'm telling you man like it was almost like seeing like uh photos of like kathy ireland from the 90s when you're like wow jesus christ like i remember how hot you thought that girl was back then like that so it was cool to kind of like um to get to have that kind of like young stupid like uh, on screen crush feeling again I, I hadn't had had it in a while <laughs> no it's yeah no i i totally get what you're saying there that's it, it's honestly it's it's one of those things like it's that's one of those things speaking of jamie lee curtis um whenever whenever true lies is on tv mm-hmm. uh do i sit there and wait for the scene where she's in the hotel room with arnold yes i do mm-hmm. Yes, of course. Yes, Every single fucking time. Good Every Lord. time, dude. Good Lord. <clears throat> yes. Oh, dude, I got to ask you about this. Like, so in in today's, like, so let's just say for, and I know that they remade The Fog in 2005 yeah. or something like yeah. that. But, like, if they were to do this today, do you think that 
it would go from Jamie Lee getting picked up hitchhiking on the side of the road to like banging the dude all in like 10 minutes of screen time. Like, I just don't see that happening today. I think there would be something in the middle. Yeah, no, you're, you're correct. That doesn't really, I mean, maybe, maybe in, in one of the Blumhouse, if this is like a Blumhouse production, maybe, but is it like a mainstream horror? No, I would say no. Yeah. I mean, like there's, unless like that, guy who picked her up was like John Hamm or something where you're like, okay, yeah, I would totally jump into bed with that guy. Right. I just, it was one of the things that for some reason, after rewatching it the, this time recently, like it, it's just, that's the thing that I just can't get my head out of this. Like, man, she really banged that dude super fast. And it wasn't like, he's all that good looking of a guy. Not at all. I'm telling you, man, the women back in the seventies and well, I guess that was like 1980. Um, just fast and loose brother. We missed yeah, out. That, that's all it took, man, was just picking up somebody on the side of the just road. Just being <laughs> somewhat nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, that little bit of niceness. Yeah. Uh, no. I, uh, but, yeah. I, I, yeah. That, 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 is, that is strange, and it doesn't really square with, with today, basically. But, yeah, whatever. Um, what about you? What's your favorite? Chema, I am, I am in the bag hard for Big Trouble in Little China. I've seen that movie probably 15 to 20 times. Um it's just it's so well executed and it's it's a movie now that that just can't be made for various reasons like i already mentioned it's sort of kind of locked in time um because of like its reliance on like mysticism and and you know it just in today's world it just wouldn't really make sense but also in today's world could you imagine casting you know whatever the kurt russell analog would be for today's action hero and you know casting him and then not making him the main character of the movie because Je- I mean, Jack Burton is the main character, but he's the co-lead, and he's not the action hero. That's Dennis Dunn. Okay. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The you know, the, the Asian guy is the lead essentially. Once once we actually get into Little China, and we get mm-hmm. into all the you know, once the the story really starts to pick up, it's Dennis Dunn's movie, and Kurt Russell just kind of bumbles along, and that's which is like the point. And he he actually. Uh, Carpenter actually had to add scenes to the movie because, like, the studio executives didn't understand why the heroic figure and this action hero that we have in Kurt Russell, why he wasn't the action hero in this movie. Interesting. And it just doesn't – there's no way they would make that movie the same way now. Oh, no, not at all. The the action hero would be the focal point from minute number one. Like, the first opening scene of the movie would either be him waking up and we get his problems or be him stopping a crime to set off the – or trying to stop a crime, but he doesn't. That thus sets off the the plot in motion and everything. You wouldn't get that in today's world. It would be – the whole movie would be – one giant marketing campaign around like guys like John Cena or whoever that action star is. Right, and and I'm actually glad you brought that up too, the way – you know, like – we don't really get a look into Jack Burton's life per se. Like we just know that he's a trucker. He's an over the road mm-hmm. trucker, but we get it. But when we, when he gets introduced to, um, oh gosh, I already, I'm already forgetting Dennis Dunn's character's name. Um, but when he gets introduced to him, we learn about Dennis Dunn and learn about the things that he's doing and he's waiting for his girlfriend and what's, you know, essentially right there, that should be a signal to you that like, Oh, this is Dennis Dunn's movie. Like, mm-hmm. everything's going to hinge on what he and his girlfriend and this character, Lopan, like, that's what everything's going to hinge on. Not that Kurt Russell doesn't do anything, but, like, Kurt Russell's almost, com- uh, almost comic relief. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, 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 definitely, dude. And how how cool is it to see Victor Wong in something that's not Tremors? I, I know. There's something about... Like, I, it's weird, because, like, all I knew him from, from it's still, like, immediately come to my mind, and then he's got 
large roles in both Prince of Darkness and um, Big Trouble in Little China. It's nuts. Yeah, I know. It's pretty nuts. Like, and and not only that, like I I always forget that um, until like I really think about it, I always forget that uh, that James Hong is in this movie um, as Lopan. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. James Hong has like six hundred movie credits. That is the end of the first part of our spooky season profile of John Carpenter. Um, it's also the end of all of our technical difficulties. Um, sorry about that. It uh, Skype got a little bit uh, got a little bit fidgety. And uh, resulted in some uh, some of that digitization of the voice and you know, that breaking up and stuff. But it ends here. Um, but uh, you can pick this up tomorrow when we continue our profile on John Carpenter.